And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when we cover not just the waterfront, but everything. Remember, everything, everywhere, all at once. Well, we have a really interesting show tonight, a very packed show, a very complicated show, because we're going to be introducing a new model that Andrew Curry and I have worked out over the last week or so, which we think fits all the data available to us in all the public sources that we reconnoiter all the time. And it actually has some elements of prediction, which, uh, you know, remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. So we're going to be predicting some additional data points that everyone, uh, us here and you guys out there in the audience, are going to be watching for to see if our model is correct. And I'm telling you, it explains so much of the weirdness which has driven me crazy about all this stuff for decades. But that's later in the show. Uh, We're going to be going through a lot of very interesting news items, things that have happened on the um, geopolitical front, on the space front, on the, you know, high frontier front. Uh, So let's get right to it. What you want to do is, if you're not a regular listener, and we probably have a lot of new listeners from the Clyde Lewis show that I did a couple nights ago. You want to go to the other side of midnight.com. I mean, if you're listening, you're probably already there. And if you're on a phone at the very top, you will see a uh, navigation bar. If you're on a computer, uh, it it says, you know, in bright green, uh, tonight's show Saturday with a whole bunch of people. If you hover over your navigation bar on your phone or over the left-hand side of all those green names, a, a menu will come up to the right or below, and you want to click on my name where it says Fast Links to Items, and that will take you to the guest page where we have um, various items for various guests that are part of the programs you know, tonight. Uh, my item, my first item, is uh, the UN court in The Hague issued orders to Israel in terms of Gaza to limit deaths and damage. We're now looking at something like 26,000 people killed, half of them children, Uh, 65,000 wounded. These are numbers coming from the uh, uh, government of Gaza. I believe the Palestinian Authority is actually issuing these, and they are, you know, closely connected in the other part of the West Bank to what's going on in Gaza. Um, This is unconscionable, and, of course, the... uh, South African government took uh, Israel to the court, accusing it of genocide. The court has not ruled on that, but has given an interim ruling, basically ordering a limit to deaths and damage, and that can only happen if there is serious negotiation among all parties. Bombing stops. I mean, this is this is a nightmare. But the reason that we're posting it at the top of tonight's show, because it's my perspective that the only way that the multiple levels of insanity going on on planet earth tonight are going to change, are going to come to a stop, are going to pause, are going to be reassessed 
as if the human race is confronted with a much larger problem and opportunity, namely the surrounding reality of extraterrestrial intelligence, both in the form of active players zipping around in spacecraft and doing God knows what both here and out there, as well as our particular uh, province, which is pursuit of artifacts left by a lot of folks all over the solar system. We can't tell the players yet because we haven't found the libraries. When we find the libraries, and that's only a matter of knowing what you're looking for and then looking, starting with the moon, uh, then we'll know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So uh, let's swing right into it. Um, this has been a pretty amazing couple, three weeks in the space game and the space biz. Item number two in my radio with pictures section, right under number one, um, the Japanese tried to land an unmanned probe, one of many nations and private uh, companies and corporations that are now part of this, you know, second age of space, this moon rush, this this kind of gold rush on the moon, kind of like uh, 1849 in California. And there's an awful lot of players sending a variety of spacecraft, uh, all of them at the moment unmanned, although the Chinese are making serious noises about mounting a manned mission in the foreseeable future. Uh, next couple of years, if not sooner. We have, of course, the U.S. Artemis mission, which has been delayed. We covered all this in previous shows, uh, kind of centering on the Peregrine unmanned mission that was sent from a private company called Astrobotic, um, built and uh, put together, assembled, designed, all of that going back some 16 years. And then it launched on the 8th of January, and everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. In the last week, um, the SLIM mission, the unmanned SLIM, which stands for Smart Landing uh, on Moon, um, I'm sorry, Start Landing Investigating Moon, which is the acronym from the Japanese, it reached the uh, moon, was in orbit, was deorbited just a few days ago, and wound up almost making it to the surface. And then something really weird happened. Gosh, wouldn't expect that. And you can see in item number two, that's a picture from the Japan Times, uh, which is being reissued by Space.com. The damn spacecraft landed on its head. It literally is is upside down. And the um, it actually tipped over on its side because it's, it, it was not supposed to land according to their design and plan of the spacecraft uh, with the rocket engines pointed down like normal landings are. But it had this very bizarre rotation just above the landing surface where it was supposed to tip over and then plunk down on a slope. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into all of that a little later in the program. The point is that it didn't work. And what you're going to find out later is in our model, why it didn't work 
and the Japanese have come a whisker away from admitting our model is correct. So we are going to um, get into that in detail uh, as we go through the rest of the morning. In the interim, item number three, uh, this is the uh, official BBC story of the end, the rather ignominious end of the Peregrine mission. Remember, on the 8th of uh, January, on a new, brand new Vulcan rocket, NASA launched a mission for Astrobotic, this private company, a robot named Peregrine, which, of course, is a falcon, which is a code name for Horus. And we did a whole show with the intricacies of the Peregrine mission, its payload, which included little canisters, little capsules containing DNA and ashes of people both deceased and still living that was going to be landed on the moon, initially at a place called Lacus Mortis, the Lake of Death, which should kind of tell you what the priority of the mission really was. Uh, NASA paid Astrobotic $108 million to place five scientific experiments aboard the Peregrine mission. There were something like 15 other payloads from like seven or eight other countries around the world, mostly mementos, keepsakes, notes, um, names of people that wanted to be participants in the mission, a wide variety of um, non-scientific, what would you call it? Well, payloads is the proper term, but only five of them were active scientific payloads bought and paid for by our friendly local neighborhood space agency. It was launched in the wee hours of the morning of uh, Monday, the 8th of January. And a few hours later, according to NASA and Astrobotic, the fuel system for its own engines and attitude control system on the Peregrine robot, uh, for some reason, sprang a leak. And there were the perils of Pauline as it was cruising toward the moon. And then it was determined that it did not have enough fuel to land on the moon after the leak uh, had really calmed down and was basically a trickle toward the end of its uh, life. Um, Astrobotic and NASA tried to resurrect something from the mission, which was to turn on all the experiments and get data as it uh, went out to the lunar distance, because, of course, it had a weird kind of looping trajectory that went twice around the Earth in this long egg-shaped orbit that stretched all the way to the moon, 239,000 miles, and then came back to Earth and then whipped around and was supposed to go back to the moon on a second pass and then go into orbit and then land. Well, none of that last part took place because um, even though the leak radically diminished and even though there were a number of voices ours in particular saying that they could safely with the fuel remaining and the management of the engines they could do a burn around the earth which would put them on a uh, escape trajectory from the earth moon system putting the spacecraft and it's something like 65 capsules of uh, remains uh, as well as the instruments on a heliocentric orbit that would have taken it out about as far as Mars and then back in toward Earth and then out toward Mars. And it would have 
swung in this eternal orbit forever as a kind of a memento to the, the, the spirit of Horus, the spirit of the falcon in the Egyptian motif. For some reason, and there is great debate over who gave orders to whom and why and when, um, the Astrobotic Corporation, instead of prolonging the life of its spacecraft as long as possible and gaining as much data from the uh, turned-on experiments as possible in an interplanetary cruise mode as opposed to sitting on the moon mode, they chose to basically, for the first time in the history of the United States space program, they chose to kill it deliberately by having it re-enter at high velocity, something like 25,000 miles per hour or more over the South Pacific Ocean and burn up in a blazing streak of glory like an artificial meteor. Not put it into eternal orbit around the sun, not preserve the DNA and ashes of you know, Gene Roddenberry and Arthur Clarke and uh, Majel Roddenberry and, and, and their son Rod, um, but in fact to doom it to a, a quick death over the South Pacific. And to this night, we do not know why this decision was made. There are some really dumb excuses, and that item number three basically goes through the final you know, days and hours of the Peregrine mission. Um, I was hoping, uh, we haven't been able to get through to him yet, but I was hoping that we were going to have one of the uh, experimenters who had a payload on board, not an experiment, but an archive, a library, which has been carefully farmed out around the solar system on a variety of unmanned missions by a friend and colleague of the Enterprise mission and of the other side of midnight, uh, Nova Spivak. Nova's been on the show a couple of times. We've talked about his projects to basically place very carefully um, created archives on thin sheets of impermeable nickel, which are embossed with literal engravings that are a how-to building step-by-step-by-step for a future culture that may not even have as much as a microscope, but they start there and then they move up into more complex levels of the coding and you basically have the equivalent of Wikipedia or the Encyclopedia Britannica, the entire written history of planet Earth, all of us, all of these nations and all of our last 6,000 years engraved through this special technology and process that Spivak and the Arch Foundation has created to create these archives on interplanetary and planetary and even low Earth orbiting spacecraft or high orbit spacecraft that have been sent out from Earth, kind of like that scene in Contact, no, it was Cosmos, where Carl Sagan takes a thistle from, from the field and literally faces left in the camera and blows on it and you see all these little thistles blowing out across the field, spreading out that's kind of like what Nova's been doing for the last several years in scattering copies of this voluminous and comprehensive ancient 
human library on missions and vessels and spacecraft fanning out across the solar system. And since he had one of those archives on the Peregrine mission, I thought it would be nice to have him on board tonight to describe in somewhat more detail, A, how his, his institution, his nonprofit, is doing this, how they literally created from the ground up the technology, which should last in space millions and millions of years. And uh, what he's involved in right now, which is a similar archive here on Earth, one of, I believe, several that he's been participating in, the last uh, which is, I believe, going to be buried in a mine like a mile down with some kind of indicator so folks on top, if there's ever a collapse of civilization and we climb back up the ladder once again to technology, someone will find this. They'll be able to decode the plaques and the stuff on the surface that tell them there's something priceless hidden a mile down and the process will begin. In other words, if you're trying to recreate a civilization, it might be useful to have a vast library showing you how to do it. And of course, uh, I can these reminding me I should tell everybody that you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight and tonight's show is called, as you'll see later in the program, A Piece of the action for January 27th, 2024. And the reason we picked that name will become quite evident uh, as we move through the evening and then the morning. So continuing, um, if you look at, let me look at my items here. If you, if you look at the Peregrine uh, lander uh, item in number three, one of the biggest mysteries and I guess we don't have Holger yet. One of the biggest mysteries is why, for the first time ever, with a spacecraft that was not only surviving, but was projected to have a useful lifetime based on the fuel, uh, not, not just of hours, but of weeks, which could have given the scientists at NASA who paid, as I said, the agency paid $108 million to carry those five experiments. There could have been all kinds of both scientific data, uh, Astrobotic has a major contract for later this year to send another space to the moon, a robot, much bigger, much more complicated. This one designed to do real meaningful research into the crucial parameter that has to be present on the moon. Otherwise, no one can talk about realistically lunar bases or, or you know, cities someday. In other words, looking into the idea of in situ resources, water, nitrogen, hydrocarbons, things like that that are useful both in breathing and drinking and making rocket fuel and a whole bunch of other things which were first detected and analyzed in some detail by another unmanned national mission called La Crosse, which was sent to the moon back in 2009 and which gave us an amazing inventory of volatiles. These are materials that kind of leak away or outgas or turn into vapor. That's why they're called volatiles. Uh, and it turns out that the moon, uh, apart from being a dead, dry landscape, um, it's basically at the poles, not really anywhere else, but at the poles, north, 
and South Pole, there are extraordinary reservoirs of these materials in frozen form under the ground and even much, much deeper. And it's those that the second astrobotic mission, the so-called Griffin mission, uh, is going to explore sometime later in 2024 when the Griffin unmanned spacecraft, again created by Astrobotic, leaves for the moon as part of a precursor set of Artemis missions, unmanned missions, to inventory in much greater detail the resources and volatiles and vital things like ices, uh, a wide variety of ices, including water ice, that are present at the South Pole of the moon, which is where the Viper mission, which has been delayed already by about a year, uh, was intended later this year to land. Now, of course, with everybody really focused on the design death of Peregrine, built obviously by the same company, I mean, wouldn't it have been useful for a company which has never launched a mission before, which has operational constraints, communications, scheduling, expertise, wouldn't it have been useful to give the people at Astrobotic in their own control center really invaluable operational, you know, time working the dials, working the communications, working the instruments, commanding and downloading computers and all that on a real live mission in space, not a computer simulation, but a real mission that somehow they were able to rescue so that the fuel uh, on board was expected to last for weeks, which, had given, which would have given them invaluable experience. Instead, for some reason, which tonight is really still unknown, we don't know who gave the orders. Legally, it should have been astrobotic, but there are serious rumors from the industry that NASA simply told Astrobotic to kill it, kill it in the crib before it even gets near the moon. And they came out with all kinds of dumb and stupid excuses about nodding, not wanting to clutter up cislunar space. Does anybody have any idea how many million square miles there are between the Earth and moon in a volume that's the size of the lunar orbit, a huge sphere, a quarter of a million miles in rate. I mean, their excuse was infantile, juvenile, silly, and stupid, and obviously a lie. No, there was some other hidden agenda which demanded for the first time in NASA's entire history that a working, rescued spacecraft capable of giving all kinds of crucial real-time information was deliberately commanded to be destroyed. Wonder what was really going on. Well, someday we may know. Somebody may, may leak something in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, next 10 years, who knows? Anyway, uh, well, so far there is no joy uh, in um, uh, Nova, so we're going to move on. We're basically almost at the bottom of the... Uh, uh, first half hour of the other side of midnight when we come back i'm going to you might want to look at item number four because this is directly where 
uh, I took tonight's title of the uh, program. This is a very, very interesting uh, episode of uh, Star Trek original series. And when we get into the content of tonight's show, you're going to see why uh, I chose it in concert with Andrew to describe this new model for why all of these weirdnesses that appear to make no sense unless you have a meta model make no sense at all for what is really going on. But we think, and you'll be the judge, of course, if our model fits the data better than any that has come before. And again, the essence of good science is that the model should predict something. Or, if you're really lucky, more than something. More than one something. Some some things, plural. So we will see. Okay, moving on. Item number five. Um, got about five minutes to till the, till the bottom of the hour. Another major story coming out of space in the last couple of weeks revolves around NASA's unmanned OSIRIS-REx mission to the little asteroid about 1,500 feet across, orbiting well out there in the asteroid belt uh, every, you know, three or four years, uh, called Bennu, which, of course, is, again, another name drawn directly from Greek mythology, the so-called Bennu bird, which is the namesake and the origin of the whole concept of the phoenix legend, the bird that immolates itself in its own ashes and then rises newborn as a new incarnation of the phoenix. Well, the phoenix mythology comes directly from the ancient Egyptian mythology of the Bennu bird. So, um, when the Bennu mission several years ago was launched and took several years to get to uh, Bennu in the asteroid belt, and then was commanded into orbit to spend a couple years flying various circles around this tiny, relatively tiny, I mean, kind of like skyscraper-sized, 1,500-foot uh, asteroid, which looked really very un-asteroid-like. It um, did not have a potato shape, didn't look like anything that, you know, comic book artists or, you know, um, movie writers and producers and directors and television producers and all that had portrayed to the American people and around the entire world of what asteroids look like. Uh, Bennu, in fact, looked like a truncated cube octahedron, which, as I described on Clyde show on Thursday, is basically a uh, square. You've got four straight sides meeting at 90 degrees. And from both sides of the square, top and bottom, you have a very elongated pyramid, which comes to a point. So it's got four sides sloping down to a point, uh, symmetrical around the midplane, which is this uh, four square shape. That's called, a, and the one that the new looks like is really heavily eroded. The, the top points have been whacked off, constant meteor erosion over probably millions of years, so you've got the remains of the um, uh, central part, the equatorial part, missing 
the top and the bottom. And that's the shape of this so-called asteroid named Bennu that Osiris Rex from NASA visited several years ago. Well, in addition to spending, you know, months and months and months orbiting, uh, looking basically at all aspects of Bennu with remote sensing, at the very end of its uh, mission, it basically took a uh, nosedive with a sample arm into uh, the surface of Bennu itself and collected a sample. And that sample was then packaged up in a capsule attached to the Bennu spacecraft and then ejected on a trajectory that would take it past the Earth in another couple of years, where it arrived. And when we come back from the break, I'll tell you what happened next. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, January 27th, 2024. You're listening to a piece of the action on the other side of midnight. And there's a reason for adopting that original Star Trek, very interesting, and as you'll see, relevant episode. So, resuming... So NASA sent this unmanned spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx, which stands, of course, OSIRIS is Orion, and Rex is Latin for king. OSIRIS king, OSIRIS, you know, one of the mythical god pharaohs of ancient, ancient Egypt, maybe, what, 30,000 years ago, give or take, depending upon who you talk to. Anyway, this mission went out rendezvoused, went into orbit, successfully looked at all kinds of parameters with remote sensing instruments, cameras and spectrometers and all that, sensed radiation and uh, got some amazing video. And then at the very end of its mission, it plunged this uh, sample collection device, like a long telescoping arm with a dustpan at the end of it, into the asteroid, kicking up a huge amount of material closed the pan, brought it back into the spacecraft, inserted it in a capsule which was designed to separate from the mothership, part on a trajectory aimed at Earth eventually. And last fall, it finally arrived in the form of a streaking artificial meteor in this reentry capsule containing these priceless samples, the first the U.S. had ever retrieved from an asteroid 
in the deserts of Utah, retrieved, sent by helicopter to the adjunct of the old lunar receiving laboratory in Houston, Texas, at the Manned Spacecraft Center, there to be opened and analyzed as the first asteroid samples ever retrieved by the U.S. brought back to Earth and analyzed by the friendly local neighborhood space agency that our tax dollars support. And therefore, there was a problem because for four months, NASA claimed couldn't find the right wrench or screwdriver to get into the canister to open it up in a sterile environment in a clean room in a in a clean sterile glove box and so we waited and waited as weeks and months went by and after four weeks four months i'm sorry eventually nasa said just a few days ago well we finally were able to create the right tools, et cetera, et cetera, and we opened her up, and that is my item number five. Now, if you click on number five, which is the actual NASA.gov page for the Bennu sample canister, and then at the very bottom, you read all the way down to the very bottom, there is a link to an amazingly high-resolution image of the photography that NASA did when they first were able finally to open the last two fasteners, bolts, nuts and bolts, whatever, and open the damn thing up in a pristine, sterile condition. And what I have done over the last week or so is I have lifted several close-ups from that image, that official NASA image, which are items six and seven and eight, and our, one of our guests tonight in the second hour, Ruggiero, also has taken some and will be talking to them in terms of his expertise, which is doing really detailed drawings. And what I find and what you're going to see in six and seven and eight of my items for tonight, for Saturday, December, December, January 27th, uh, the program, A Piece of the Action, is that there aren't rocks and dust and pebbles and gravel and the stuff that NASA and all the rest of us were told to expect. No, there are more obviously, blatantly technological artifacts in this sample canister in color. All I've done is increase the saturation. Those are the real colors of the real stuff in the pan and in item number six, in the upper left, you can see something that frankly looks exactly like an old corroded lithium-ion battery, would complete with a little gold glint at the top where the, you know, the, the ceiling in the factory of the battery uh, normally takes place here on Earth. In the bottom left of that picture, there is circuits, actual printed circuits, geometric, on the surface of a kind of cube-like object, and on and on. Item number seven, the circle in the bottom right, that's one of the, you know, very resistant uh, bolts or screws or whatever held this thing together. The light area in the upper left is the insulation in the pan, which was basically padding. So when the scoop reached down and picked up the samples 
They weren't simply jostling around in a metallic, you know, container, which might break them or damage them in some way, but they basically bounced in zero gravity off the cocoon-like layers of insulation and uh, soundproofing and uh, uh, foam. It, it's kind of like a foam. It absorbs impacts and all that. And in the left-hand corner, which is enlarged in number eight, there's two more objects that are obviously artificial, obviously machined, obviously have component parts. And one of them looks for all the world like more circuitry, kind of like at the top middle of number eight. Needless to say, none of this should be there. None of it. And it's not rocks, as you're going to hear from a number of our uh, panelists tonight who have independently looked at this and have come to very similar, if obvious, conclusions. So it's now, you know, obvious in hindsight that the four months that it took for them to find the damn right screwdriver, I mean, the, the cartoons and the late night jokes and all that were, were merciless. NASA can land humans on the moon half a century ago and it can't find the right screwdriver to open its damn can. I mean, went on from there. No, this was obviously some kind of delaying action. So when you look very carefully, when you look really carefully at these close-ups, and we have many, many more, it's obvious that what they were waiting for was to make this extraordinary high-resolution image of what's in the can available to the world, but not the appropriate ritual time. There is some kind of ritual calendar clicking in the background, inexorably counting down to disclosure, both in the area that I specialized in for the last 30, 40 years, which is artifacts left by a whole bunch of folks out there all over the solar system, big and small, architecture, arcologies, and now micro-machines and circuits retrieved from something that everybody thinks is an asteroid, but of course, in fact, is what we said it was all along. One of these ancient, ancient spacecraft, habitats, a ship, endlessly now orbiting the sun like a derelict, waiting for us humans on Earth in this era to reach out bring samples home, and try to figure out who they were, how they lived, did they leave us something even more interesting than junk? Are there libraries in these ancient spacecraft? Computers, holographic, non-specific sources of data on a whole ancient panorama of stunning pre-human history to which up until these photographs were made public, most of the American people and 99.99% of the world has no idea is a reality. Which brings us back to SLIM. Because if you look at item number nine, you know, click on it, make it bigger. In the Japan Times a couple days ago, there was a story which is actually posted as my item up above. Let me, let me go back and give you the number. It's item number two. 
That is from the Japan Times as recopied and reposted by Space.com. Well, there is an extraordinary new aspect to the crashed kind of slim mission on the moon. Because if you look at that image that was released uh, a couple of days ago at this new press conference by uh, JAXA, which is the Japan uh, Space Agency, they released a photo taken by one of the two little rovers uh, ejected from the uh, slim spacecraft as it was descending the last few hundred feet to its bizarre upside-down landing. And they were ejected apparently before the spacecraft turned upside down, hit the ground, and they have cameras. And the cameras had linked directly to the NASA JPL Deep Space Network. They didn't have to route their signals through the upside-down lander. So they were able to take pictures of the lander apart from the lander by basically sitting on the lunar surface a few feet away and taking a set of images, one of which they released, as I said, a few days ago. And as you can see at the very top of the inverted spacecraft, there are supposed to be two engines. One of them is missing. It turns out in the last few hundred feet of the landing, something extraordinarily bizarre and weird and impossible happened and it ripped off one of the engines producing unbalanced thrust beyond the control of the attitude control system and so the spacecraft since it was basically almost standing still uh, the last couple hundred feet it came down erratically it apparently hit and rolled and the japan times quoting the JAXA um, uh, management, and the, the uh, wording is right there. Japan Times adds that Sakai, who was a member of the Slim management team, the Japanese team, said that the loss of the engine was the result of, quote, an undisclosed external factor. Adding a camera had captured an engine nozzle lying separate on the lunar surface. The team, according to the Japan Times, is continuing to analyze the cause of this impossibly unprecedented space history failure in an effort to land a robot on the moon. So at this point, let me go to my panel, because we have some really good panelists with us tonight. Um, what I'm going to do is to... Go back up to the top of the page. Remember, hover over the navigation bar on your phone, and you will see a list of tonight's participants. Uh, Holger Eisenberg is with us. Um, there's also a fast link to bios if you look under the uh, fast links to items in that navigation bar. And Nova has a sterling background in space science, engineering. Um, he's an imaging specialist. He was the first to call to NASA's attention that they had put out the wrong color of the original Viking imagery from Mars. And he's currently working in Silicon Valley for uh, mainstream companies that we don't need to mention tonight. Holger has been following both these missions, the Peregrine mission 
and the SLIM mission and has some really interesting things to add to our conversation. So without further ado, Holger, what is your assessment of this bizarre series of events? Uh, about the image from uh, the small rover during the SLIM landing that I, I saw it as the most colorful image uh, received from the moon so far <laughs> with the gold gold Mylar foil spacecraft in the background. It was a nice lit uh, lunar surface in the foreground. Uh, of course, a bit unfortunately, head first landing. <laughs> uh, and uh, adding to that, uh, uh, simulation gamers who, who went through the uh, Kerbal Space Program uh, years ago, they uh, remembered uh, a similar photo as start screen from this game. It was uh, the start screen of the game Kerbal Space Program, a space simulation game, uh, around 2015. Yeah, <laughs> a really similar scene was shown with uh, Well, frankly, uh, if they if the North Japanese base if the Japanese base their design of their spacecraft off this Kerbal, you know, space video game, they were nuts. Because anybody, any engineer could have said, if you have a problem. It's going to roll. Why is it going to roll? Because it has what was called in the trade a very low moment of inertia. The ancient surveyor spacecraft by NASA, which landed successfully on the moon, Surveyor 3, which landed on, uh, let me do a parenthetical here, the design of the slim lander was supposed to land on a slope of something like 10 degrees. Surveyor 3, which looked nothing like the Slim Lander, which was a big tetrahedral, you know, three-legged stool with arms that stuck out, you know, of of, uh, booms. Those booms were deployed when the rocket thrust it toward the moon on the final, you know, third burn to give it escape velocity to reach the moon. It, It created a really what we call high moment of inertia. For people who don't imagine what I'm saying, remember all these high wire walkers, both in circuses and some of these daredevils that walk across canyons, whatever, and they're walking on a single, you know, cable, very narrow cable, and they have this huge, long pole. Why are they carrying a pole in front of them? Because it changes their moment of inertia to where if they make a misstep or there's wind or whatever, by rotating the pole up and down, they can basically balance themselves on a very tiny cable and not fall off and kill themselves. The, the Japanese designed a spacecraft that almost was destined to have problems because it was small, compact. You know, it's kind of like that old uh, joke, when you fall off your horse, tuck and roll. Or if you're a ballerina, you know, or or if you're an ice skater, you know, doing uh, some kind of uh, uh, demonstration or showmanship or whatever, inevitably you will see skaters tuck in their arms and spin very fast. And when they p- p- fling out their arms, their spin radically is reduced because their moment of inertia, as it's called, is increased. Had the dumbest damn design, particularly if they want to lo- land not on the flat, but on some kind of sloped surface. And the reason we know that the surveyor design worked 
and the Kerbal slash Japanese design of Slim didn't is because when Surveyor 3 landed at that crater on the moon, on the left-hand side of the full moon, where, where uh, astronauts from Apollo 12 were to follow them with a manned mission a couple, three years later, they literally bounced down on the tetrahedral three-legged footpads on a 15-degree slope and came to rest right side up and were sitting there so the astronauts from Apollo 12 could land next to them, walk around, and clip off certain materials to bring home. The design of the Japanese mission was dumb to begin with. And you want to ask yourself, given that we've got decades and decades, 50 years of space experience, why would engineers, even of another country like Japan, strike out on their own, take a design from a damn video game, and not use the tried and true design of NASA that's a half century old and has been proven in a series of stunningly successful unmanned missions at the dawn of the space age. And I'll bet, Holger, you have no answer to that as I don't have any decent scientific or engineering answer. Go ahead. Uh, well, it, it was designed uh, to rotate on landing. It was, it was designed to topple on landing by 90 degrees. Unfortunately, it exceeded that by another 90 degrees. <laughs> so it was not a... Well, it, it was it, not only that, but it twisted sideways. So it landed on its side and the uh, solar panels, which were supposed to be facing up, are now facing to the right in that image, uh, you know, from J the Japan Times, space.com. And they lost power on landing the battery started draining because of course the panel was not recharging them so they shut everything down and they're waiting for i think later this coming week the moon will rotate the idea is now that we see the geometry the the sun will eventually move around to that side of the spacecraft we'll be able to recharge the batteries and they'll get maybe a week or so of of, of useful something out of a two-week planned mission because again in a very anomalous fashion all of these robotic missions the indians the japanese the astrobotic mission they're all being designed to die after the end of the lunar day after two weeks after sunset and yet 50 years ago 1966-67 surveyor when the dawn came up, it came back on the air, and NASA was, uh, at the end, trying to figure out how they could command it to turn itself off because it was dominating a limited range of frequencies they needed for successor surveyor missions. And I actually joked with Homer Newell, who came to see me at the museum in Springfield during this period of time. He was the deputy administrator of NASA, and I said to him, Homer, you're going to have to send somebody up there with a damn stick to beat it to death. Joke, of course, because Apollo was years away. The point is, the earliest stuff when we knew nothing survived not just one lunar day, but multiple lunar days. And the current stuff where we have this huge database of data on how to survive on the moon 
state-of-the-art technology, better batteries, better insulation, better everything by orders of magnitude, they can't get the damn things to survive even one lunar day. And what's wrong with this picture? But here with, with the slim landing, uh, it's ex- expected to wake up on February 1 because uh, from the orientation, the, the solar cells will receive light soon after or during. Well, sunset. that's because the moon is rotating and the sun's going to go around to the side where the, where the panel is now facing, right? Yeah. On, uh, yeah but, it, but after on sunset, the... it's not going to wake up again. So they'll have less yeah. than a week in a very unusual position because of a dumb design. How do I know? It's not me talking. It's NASA's database. You do not design spacecraft with tiny moments of inertia. You want them as big and wide as possible so they will not rotate easily. Anyway, enough of that belaboring. Please continue. Yeah, it's, uh, the sunset is on January 31, and uh, then it will receive light, charge the batteries, and the expectation is to be able to switch it on during the beginning of the night then on February 1 or shortly later, apparently to uh, cool the system down that it is not overheating when operating. So that is... So are the Japanese now saying that they intend to try to wake this thing up when the second dawn comes up in like three weeks? Uh, No, on February 1. On February 1, the night is beginning in that location, in the landing location. Right. And then they directly plan to wake it up during the night, apparently. During the night? Yeah, because that oh. is the night uh, on the third quarter of the moon. Okay. So still in the position with reception to so Earth. So the idea well, is they're, they're planning to recharge the batteries, which I presume then would run heaters until they run out of battery power. Is that the idea? During the night? That's the plan I've heard in the press conference. Well, they're trying there. to get their missing week back. Which, which, is, sure. which, which is a good improvised plan. But unlike the folks at Astrobotic and NASA who basically ordered Astrobotic to kill Peregrine, the Japanese are going to try to keep their mission alive as long as possible. Isn't that interesting? That's uh, the meteor ending from Peregrine. That was indeed a bit surprising. <laughs> but... Uh, and, but uh, all about the, this timeline, this, this strange month, starting with the Peregrine 1 launch and the Osiris capsule opening on uh, January 11th, and then the Japanese uh, landing, unfortunate landing. But uh, I looked up the, the, the previous Japanese missions, and they had uh, the biggest, their biggest success was uh, asteroid sample returns twice in 2005 and 2020 from Ryogo uh, asteroid and from uh, previous in t- 2005, the other asteroid. And that mission was named uh, Hayabusa. And Hayabusa means uh, in Japanese, a uh, peregrine falcon. <laughs> so another, another peregrine <laughs> this month. <laughs> well, they all share the same mythology, even though Japan is light years away from ancient Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So let's go now to this loss of the engine, because I know that there was a previous interplanetary mission um, uh, called Akasuki, which was a Venus-bound mission. They were supposed to go to Venus, 
uh, burn the engines uh, for what they call Venus orbit insertion. And they lost an engine when they started the burn. And they claimed that it was a leaky valve that delivered a propellant mixture, which was oxidized rich. So basically they had an explosion in the engine. But that began at the beginning of the burn, not within seconds of landing safely on the moon at the end of a 20-minute burn. Because they took about 20 minutes from when they lit the engines in low lunar orbit to where they were poised over the landing site. And then they claim some external event. I think the key here, Holger, is it's not like the Venus mission because that was an internal event, i.e. a valve, propellants. This they specifically claim, if you go back to my item number, I'll get the, the thing here for you in a second. Go back to my item number uh, nine. Um, they basically say it was an external event, meaning separate from the spacecraft or its systems. So let me tell you what I think happened. On the way down, they hit the glass. They hit the dome because they were trying to land in a place called Mare Nectaris, which in Latin means the sea. Remember, these names are hundreds of years old. And if you look at any decent imagery shot from Earth uh, or from other spacecraft. Um, Richard. Yes, Richard. Andrew. Sorry, it's Andrew. Um, can you hold on that? Oh, we're that actually note? we're actually yeah. at, at the top of the hour. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad. All right. I am so glad that you reminded me. So, Holger, we'll get back to you. Don't go away. Sorry, folks, but there's a lot going on tonight that I'm trying to cover in a very brief period of time. So let me do something here, which will let everybody know that we are, in fact, uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, we don't want to miss our hard break, because when you do that, uh, very bad things happen. And we don't want bad things to happen. So... We shall return after a short break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everyone, to this uh, Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight here on the 27th uh, of 2024. Program titled, A Piece of the Action. And we're going to get to why that title is so incredibly appropriate. Oh, is it appropriate? 
So, Andrew, if you're not going to give things away, you had something you wanted to say, and then I'll resume my final thought here. Yeah, just um, you you asked a question. You know, I mean, I think it was just out, out loud, but it was definitely, you know, asking Holger as well. And you said, well, why are they making these spaceships sort of like like they're almost designed to fail? Yes. At least, yeah. And I and, you know, we've been kind of I've been thinking about this and tossing it about. And, you know, what? it reminds me of these um, robotics competitions that they'll have in high schools or universities where everybody has to come up with their great idea. And then they all go to this competition and then get judged. Of who has the best concept and so you know my thought on this is that well this is deliberate in my opinion and the limited life is feels to me and again conjecture but like they're under contract to do this but they they're not allowed to have it up there very long now we can get into maybe a little oh. later why yeah why that might be but <clears throat> also you know are we seeing the beginnings of competition about positioning who's going to have the best you know delivery system you know it just it feels like some there's a scrutiny going on here what can in other do? words you're saying nobody can be that dumb unless by design precisely that's wow. what i wanted to say well that's an extremely important point holger yes point and Especially, you remind me of a tweet on Twitter I read, uh, read a few weeks ago about another contractor I don't want to name here, but uh, who proudly tweeted about a student competition yeah. uh, with an engineering competition to create a machine which throws a sheet of paper into a waste basket. <laughs> and <laughs> for a simple task, you would think, but. Uh, the uh, requirements written down uh, stated how many steps you needed to do, minimum steps in the machine, 10 steps or so you had to proceed to invent artificially, make it more complicated than needed, and then build this uh, strange machine and uh, then compete with others who build an even stranger machine and finally someone won it. Well, we used to we used to call thing. those. Remember, we used to call those Rube Goldberg devices, unnecessarily complicated for the sake of being unnecessarily complicated. Yeah. So part of this might be. I mean, if you look at it on a really crass level, you could say, well, if you're turning this into a quote unquote student competition, then you're just mining. You're mining intelligence. You're you're basically trying to get things on the cheap. You know, from smart people, hmm. you know, young people who are coming up. So there's one way to look at it. Like, well, who here has the potential to really drive our programs forward in whichever country? Well, aren't you also looking for people, personnel to recruit as part of the yes. team down the road? Exactly. So you could be doing – this could be like a huge, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Sam wants you, so does, um, you know, whatever, whatever country we're talking about here. Yeah, like really it's starting to – it's not a, a soldier uh, recruitment, but it is a um, – you know, it's brains. So that could be part of it. But, but, you know, and another part of that could be is how adventuresome can these creative people in the sciences get? Let's find out. Maybe that's why there's these superfluous um, projects because it could come a breakthrough. Well, you know what they used to call this? Headhunting. Yes, you you'd send recruiters to colleges or even high schools if they were elite high schools, and you'd kind of focus on those folks that had potential that you could see 
forecast would make real contributions and what better way than to recruit them into a kind of a simulation to see how good their engineering and their predictive and their you know whole systems approach skills were for then offering them an internship a uh, you know a, a, a grant you know student housing supplemental income whatever so you're basically trying to look at your workforce your future workforce at the at almost at the crib level to bet on the right horses for when things are going to get really really interesting down the line yeah and the that reason why I sound like science no but 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 it is trying to open up new waves of an, of um you know, of, of frontline, not frontline. Well, I mean, workers that are going to become the busy bees, you know, for for the future. I mean, if we look at everything that's going on, there's so many missions coming from so many different countries going out. And, you know, the, 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 even the Indians were so proud of how they can do it on the cheap. You know, maybe they take a little longer getting their, their ships to the moon, but they, they are working on making things cheaper and doing things more efficiently, right? And we know that the Indians have, you know, incredible technological uh, uh, brain power in their country. So, yeah, I think they're, I think it is science, um, Ron. I, I think it's the, you know, a little bit of the frontier science. You well, know? I met this particular example. It sounds oh. more like professional wrestling. You pick the winner ahead of time. But why not have so them do something trying. real as opposed to a make-up project Rube Goldberg device that no right engineer in their right mind would ever design. Ah, because they don't have to. Yeah. Or, or Ron, this is yes, distraction. Sorry. Just, just more. I, I, no, I didn't mean to cut you mm-hmm. off. But um, it, it's no, no, just no, more. I cut you off. Well, you know, if we're talking about people who are really smart, you know, and really, you know, clever, and and we are apparently, according to some people, opening up to a time in on our planet where you're going to start to see wonder kids coming forward, then, Hey, well, why not get them on the horse and get them, you know, get them on their train off the training wheels and get them going sooner. So they could be doing these sort of like what Holger said of the kind of this nonsense experiment, but really they're doing something else in the background. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there. Richard. Well, it's knows. a good foreshadowing what we're going to talk about uh, in the next uh, hour and a half or so, or maybe an hour. Let me go back to finishing my thought on swim. Because to me, it's obvious what happened. Um, They hit the dome on the way down. They were landing with thrust down, slowing, slowing, and they encountered physically at a relatively low velocity with the lowest hanging parts of the spacecraft, which are the engines. They would hit something first, a chunk of glass in the ancient, ancient lunar-wide dome that I have been proposing now for years. There are other examples I could go through, but we don't have time tonight. If you look at any decent images of Mari Nectaris uh, on Google or from NASA or from observatories or whatever, of all the Mare on the near side of the moon, Mari Nectaris is, is very swirly and bright and foggish, like there's a lot of glass left over it because in our model, the lunar seas, the dark titanium-rich lunar seas, were in fact the foundations of ancient cities under this universal glass dome, which each had their own domes separate from the dome that covered the entire lunar sphere. And either the Japanese did not know this, or their vaunted avoidance program that was designed to, we were told, you know, not land on rocks when they got down to the surface, didn't work, 
as advertised or it's not capable of picking up glass suspended over the surface by anywhere between a mile and and a, a few hundred feet somewhere in that logic chain something broke down and when they lost thrust in the one engine because it was ripped off and you can literally see it in one of the uh navigation camera images from the descending lander lying on the surface i didn't have time to put that one up uh they could not land the way they planned and they had a sideways motion and because of the moment of inertia and the tendency of this little thing to roll and not land like surveyor it rolled and rolled and actually i think holger you picked out some of the radio signals coming back in real time that morning showing weird excursions that were interpreted as Doppler shifts because the lander was rolling down a slope and then came to a stop. So, um, yeah, this, was, this was my item two here uh, in the show item list. But I had to update my, my interpretation there a bit uh, because the, the tumbling is really only a minor part and finally in the Doppler shift uh, radiograph, but it is visible there that. Uh, it's well, what do you think the major of, part is? That is uh, the uh, ten-minute descent phase before. So that is that is. It looks a bit strange because you because they hit it. something. <clears throat> uh, yes. Okay. But, uh, so so uh, on, yeah. on that note, we don't have a lot of time. I want to get to Ron because Ron has got a crucial part of tonight's saga. Crucial. I want to get to him with enough time to do it proper. And then, of course, Andrew. Um, item number ten in my section. Item number ten. Uh, click on that. That will show you an enlargement on the right of the um, uh, LEV-1, which stood for Lunar Excursion Vehicle 1, one of the two little robots they tossed out before landing, about the size of a baseball. It opened up. It's got two cameras in it. They took that beautiful, interesting image. Uh, but they actually, when the, when the Japanese posted it, they didn't make it fully right side up, so I did. Because it's it's still even weirder than it is in their official version, and in the background you've got that interesting color mountain or crater rim or something, which has all kinds of interesting geometric detail all over it. We won't go into what that detail might be right now, but if I'm right, and as they were coming down through the glass covering uh, Mare Nectaris, two layers of the upper dome and then a lower dome covering the mare itself and they hit something you'd expect there'd be other evidence well that's where the left hand version of the right hand close-up comes in because all i've done in the left hand is to take what you see on the right and simply accentuate the colors turn up the saturation i do this routinely with every image taken on the moon because if 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 the image is untouched by doing that you will see the scattering of light in the dome stretching overhead just like alan bean on apollo 12 when he was asked by newsweek well what did the sky look like and he said well a pair of patent leather shoes meaning it had glistening subliminal reflections in the sky over apollo 12 over the landing site of surveyor three that should not be there in any normal nasa description of the moon so you look at the left hand panel 
And you can see when you brighten all the colors, look just above the mountains, see the purple on both sides. That's the dome. Look around the bottom of the spacecraft, which, of course, is up on top. Look at the one surviving engine. The first thing you see is that someone has carefully clipped out around the details on the back end of this spacecraft upside down and inserted pure black. But instead of carefully artistically masking out every little bump and protuberance and instrument and engine bell on SLIM, they did a quick and dirty, cheap, lazy method. They used a clip tool and they simply clip, clip, clipped, and you can see the square jaggies that are left. Look inside those jaggies. What do you see? You see astounding, separate, glistening, scintillating points of prismatic color. These are the rainbow scatterings of the glass in the dome, and they hit one of those little points of light seen from the surface. It knocked an engine off <clears throat> and caused them to land, as my grandmother would have said, cattywampus. Model predict, model confirmed. And then, of course, in item number nine, what does the official Japanese space agency say? The loss of the engine was the result of an undisclosed external factor. They're doing it, Emily Dickinson. They're telling us they hit the dome, but they can't tell us they hit the dome. So it's an undisclosed, meaning they're keeping it secret, external factor. Gentlemen, reaction? Well, that could mean that they were talking about... Uh, bouncing around on the surface when they got there and that knocked the engine no 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 the engine came off halfway down you can see it on okay. the ground before they land get the timeline straight yes no it was knocked yes. off by hitting no, something and there's nothing above the moon unless you're going to posit klingons who tried to shoot them down which is not no, in my model yeah. yeah okay andrew i know so, oh Hoger, go ahead yeah, I've seen uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter images from the landing site pre and post landing are published now. And you can see that there's a large, about hundreds of meter diameter white surface area after landing, which was blasted away by the thrust hitting the ground. And that means much dust was reeled up most likely and maybe something else and that was hitting the engine nozzle. No, no, no. You know how we know? Because of the landing of the Apollo missions, you only got dust when you were down to about 20 or 30 feet, not hundreds of feet in the air with engines that were nothing compared to the lunar module because the mass of this spacecraft was basically, you know, like a small car, not like the lunar module, which was much heavier. So, no, each of these objections goes away. They hit the damn glass. So... Let me go to item number 11 and 12 and 13. Item number 11. As all this is going on, there's a sudden rash of op-ed pieces. Op-ed stands for uh, uh, opinion editorials in a variety of, of news media, on the web, in major papers, on television, basically asking the question, NASA wants to go back to the moon, but is it worth it? 
In other words, there is a rising chorus of of opinionated pundits who are all together simultaneously in media all over the world, basically questioning NASA, the Artemis mission, by metonymy, Elon Musk, his Starship missions to the moon. Somebody's making noise. Please stop. And it's it's simultaneous with these so-called problems with modern 21st century technology of doing something and failing that we did routinely half a century ago. Which brings me to item number 12. Tonight in orbit, there is a little unmanned spacecraft called Barry 1, launched by a company called IVO, based in North Dakota. And they launched on November 11th. The idea was they would put this into a relatively low Earth orbit, 300 uh, some miles up, 350, 320, something like that. And then they would wait several months as it outgassed and the Earth's atmosphere, you know, subtracted the energy and it spiraled closer and closer and closer to Earth. And then at some point, months after the launch, allowing this degassing time and this atmospheric, uh, uh, basically, baseline data, they would turn on an extraordinary, exotic, hyperdimensional space drive called a quantitized inertial drive or a quantum drive based on some theory and experiments they've been doing uh, for a very long time, several, several years now. And they would attempt to change the orbit of a spacecraft that has no, zero conventional rocket engines encumbered in it of any kind. It's a rudderless, propellantless, engineless uh, can. Uh, Ron the other night said it was like a can of Campbell's soup. I said, well, probably a big can of baked beans. In other words, if the orbit changes and it cannot be attributed to air resistance or some other, you know, God intervenes or something, the only thing that can explain what it's doing, if the orbit is changing, quote, by itself, is that this engine, this technology, this stunning hyper-dimensional technology actually is working. And Greg Ahrens and I have been monitoring this set of developments through links to the actual NORAD and NASA tracking system all over the world. And we've been monitoring, you know, uh, test satellites, the same uh, orbit launched by the same Falcon 9 rocket on November 11th into the same polar orbit for comparison. You know, you always need a control. And what we found over the last couple, three days is they apparently have turned this incredible hyperdimensional space drive on because the descent of the Barry 1 spacecraft has stopped and the perigee is now being raised several feet every orbit. And over the last couple, three days, it's raised almost a mile. And the, the apogee, the high point, is also going up by almost a mile. In other words, it's working. And there's no announcements, no press releases, no bells and whistles, no nothing. If you aren't following this hour by hour, you would never know because obviously they want to see 
long-term, how it works, what its peculiarities are, the intention before the launch uh, that the company said was to raise the orbit by 60 statuette miles. And that, of course, would give a plain, obvious demonstration of a technology which, if it proves true, if our data is accurate, if our monitoring of NORAD and NASA tracking data is real, we are going to see other indications already in addition to my monitoring of the altitude, Greg has been monitoring the velocity of the spacecraft, which is posted on another site devoted to tracking of only Barry 1. And you can see that graph, which we'll put up uh, after the show on the, on the page, so we have it for the archive. Keith had too much to do and other things to do, and I didn't want to overburden him because we can just add this at the end of my section tonight, these two key links, so everybody in the audience can join in looking at this orbit changing right before our eyes in a way that is totally impossible by any conventional space science. This is the beginning of the real second age of space, and it will change everything, as I've said over the last several months, not just in space science, but in the production of energy on Earth, in efforts to look at hyperdimensional links for consciousness, the creation of unlimited power distributed incredibly democratically in every home or apartment house, no more fragile grids, no more potential for terrorism. The world will change at a technological and social and cultural level at a speed that cannot even be approximated by the cliche warp nine, which leads me to Ron's intensive work on something discovered in the last few days on an image coming back via NASA from the Perseverance rover in Jezero Crater, which in fact is so bizarre and so unusual and may have such an extraordinary explanation that it frankly ranks up there with this working HD space drive in Earth orbit tonight. So without further ado, Ron, the floor is yours. Okay, I guess I know what you're talking about. Um, although I, you have a picture of it up there, so I thought you were going to... Um, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you start, can use, use my picture. That. Use my picture. Go ahead. Oh, gladly. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, I've, Holger has a wonderful... Holger, are you there at the moment? He, he might have taken a biscuit break or something. Okay, I was going <clears> to... <throat> Holger, when you come back. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Oh, okay. My question is, I saw your picture featuring the same little anomaly, soon to be described to everyone. Uh, and uh, as usual, it's impeccable. Uh, wonderful work you do. But why is your picture bigger? I mean, the frame is larger. By the way, the object we're talking up. about is in my number 13. Number yes, 13 yes, of Hoagland's please. items. Click on that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and if uh, but in Holger's version, it's uh, yes. There's some, you know, some. They were pointed more or less into the sunlight, and so you might think there'd be all sorts of refractive effects and things like that. Because certainly we've seen enough of those, especially from Percy. Uh, they're much more noticeable because basically all of Percy's cameras are color cameras. Other than that, it's 
pretty similar, just upgraded for, uh, to Curiosity. And um, the uh, color, you know, makes it more obvious. I mean, and I've been fascinated with those from the first days because they're, well, they're intriguing just because of the color. And this is different. It's different. I don't care. Uh, NASA has an explanation that says that it's just a refractive thing involving reflecting off of the lens or something. And um, there's a longer... You mean the lens of the spacecraft? Lens of the spacecraft, yes. That it's, a, it's an anomaly caused by the uh, refraction, which we've certainly seen plenty of in those cameras. But this one's different because it's sort of bonded to the surface that it's on. And the uh, uh, I'm still waiting for Holger to answer why his picture is bigger. You know, you go back to the to the sources of the sources for um, your image work and uh, um, your picture of that. Be, yeah, I, uh, because on my website, ario.info, I combine uh, yes. multiple subframes. In this case, I guess it was four subframes from the sensor into a single oh. image because uh, okay. the subframes are transmitted individually because they are limited in size on the rover operating system and they cannot transfer the the full frame image at once. That's the reason they split it up and I recombine it and on my website ah. and other images uh, at the same time, they also send a, a lower resolution frame uh, in parallel and that explains the two different versions. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, your work, that's, your work is impeccable as always. Uh, but in any case, this thing, if anybody hasn't picked up on it, it looks like a little rainbow. I know Richard doesn't like the it's word rainbow. It's not a rainbow. Story. There's no red. Okay. Where's the red? Oh, okay, okay. Well, I, it was easier to spell rainbow when I tagged the image that, that were the, of mine uh, than it was to spell iridescence. So <laughs> I am... Uh, Ron, I agree it is a rainbow. It is caused by a prism, but I'm seeing it's just uh, sunlight coming from the front because they, the <laughs> image is all, almost pointing into the sun that is special here. No, it's not. Look the, at the, the shadows. The sun, <laughs> the sun is at the 11 o'clock position above the uh, field of view of the camera because the camera is under a shelf. It was taken by two separate cameras, the uh, hazard cam, and the navigation cam, which is up on the, uh, 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 you know, mast, and it shows in both, but the, but the hazard cam is not seeing the sun. That's why the shadow of the arm sitting there on the left-hand side, that's the arm on the front of Perseverance. That's the, the base of it. That's why it's so dark and you see so much noise. That patterning is basically noise just above the light level that the camera can't resolve detail because it's, it's basically dark because it's facing the facing the camera, you know, which is opposite to where the sunlight's coming from. And when you look where the shadows are coming from, that other camera, that hazard cam, is not seeing sunlight at all. The object is glowing. It's intrinsically luminous. In fact, it's the most incredibly luminous feature on the whole landscape. It's multicolored. And it appears to be surrounded by some kind of glowing nimbus, which is suspended in midair all around it, which you can faintly see that's not even attached to the object. It's almost, right. and Ron and I were kicking this around, 
it's almost like this object is surrounded by some kind of, oh, people are going to roll their eyes, force field, which is faintly mm, visible. for everybody else, yes. Faintly uh, visible around this object. It's like nothing we have ever seen from any mission, Curiosity, or Perseverance, or any previous mission on any part of Mars. And if it was caused by reflections or sunlight dazzling the camera, you'd expect to see these all over. This is the only object, and I've looked at thousands of images from Mars over the years, and Ron, similarly. This is a unique object built in layers with geometry, internal geometry, which is striking in its own. In fact, if you want my conclusion, and there's all kinds of other artificial objects in this in this frame, to the left of this glowing thing, as well as toward the top of the frame, further away uh, from, from the spacecraft, uh, the rover and the, and the camera. This looks like something that someone of a much, much later era of civilization on Mars tried to protect, to preserve in the field, in situ, as an eroded object from a much, much earlier era. And its technology, however it's driven, is still working, like the technology and engineering and science in the IVO hyperdimensional space drive working visibly tonight in Earth orbit. Yeah, well, that's we. Uh, I'm not comparing it to the. Um, I am space drive. I'm watch. I'm watching it. No, go ahead. No, I'm just. Saying, I'm just I'm saying the technology. Remember the the flip side of the yeah, space. but it's not necessarily the same. Oh I, no 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 I no 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 no! I'm not saying it's a drive. I'm saying it's an engineering technology which, in this case, can create something to preserve something, and use as a space drive. It moves something, but they're all part of a much bigger equation. Yeah, well, uh, unlike unlike the norm, uh, I have a crazier theory. Uh, oh, because I think there is I think there is some mineral. Uh, on Mars that is fairly common there. And this can happen. I've seen it, uh, the limited knowledge we have of the mineral makeup of other, uh, of, of other planets, and asteroid stuff and so forth, uh, that we don't have here uh, for some reason. By the way, we are and bypassing I, the break at the bottom of the hour because I don't want to interrupt this. Oh, good. Go ahead. Okay. The, uh, yeah, thank you. The... Uh, the situation is that there is some mineral there which reacts strangely in, in our minds to light. Well, let we me hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me let me posit something else. When I first saw this, I didn't see the nimbus or the field around it. I looked at the geometry, the multi layers. Look at it; it's got parallel layers. You'd think, oh, sedimentary rock? No, no, no. But, but other materials can be put in layers that are artificial, then I said to myself, well, given that Percy has spotted all kinds of bright objects on the surface of Jezero that are so much brighter than we've ever seen before, and we attributed them to pieces of the dome literally falling on the surface, suppose this is a chunk of the dome overhead. Now, when we say dome on Mars or around the moon, we're not talking simple inverted glass salad bowls. 
we're talking what we what I refer to as smart architecture, both in terms of materials, in terms of doping, in terms of geometry, in terms of purpose, in terms of its ability to transmit some frequencies, block out others as a radiation shield, an ability to write on it so you'd have huge three-dimensional holograms if, if the owners or the designers of the dome itself were ever to want something like that. In other words, it's a stunningly advanced piece of technology which we can't create yet, which may have literally fallen from the sky, and because its intent was to interact with light in a very specific way, shielding the occupants of Jezero millions of years ago, and it's in sections, maybe individually powered, so it's like a fractal hologram as opposed to needing to all be one piece, and if you break a part off, that part is separated. Suppose there are individual power centers hyperdimensionally linked so it interacts with sunlight, it amplifies sunlight, and it gives you this incredible luminosity apart from the idea that some later technology mm -hmm. was built around it to protect it in the field. In its yeah, it's self-energized. Any piece yeah, of it is yeah. going to show those characteristics. And in the case of this, it was all, it's all covered with dirt. Uh, well, no, so part of it seems to be to be clear. Well, because yeah. that because that's vertical, that's raised up. It's not flat. It's a mm -hmm. third dimension. So why isn't it? Why doesn't it have a shadow? Because it's self luminous. In fact, if you look carefully at mm -hmm. the shadows on the so-called flat rock to the right of it, the shadows are not coming from the sun. The shadows are coming from the object, and you can see brightness in a specular reflective pattern even on the object the rock uh across the little moat closer to the camera closer to the bottom of the frame look look what's and we illuminated. have seen related effects uh myriads of times in other images even even the orbital stuff i've seen a lot of it on shots from mro and i go well the light is coming from the ground and reflecting around it and nobody can usually generally dispute those. Yeah, it does look like that. Isn't that a head scratcher? You know, that, I mean, that's as far as, because you go, well, you can't imagine that something on the ground could actually be emitting the light or re-emitting it in this case. Well, here's, case here's, this, here, I, here's why this is important and why I put you last before Andrew and I are going to take the kind of last half of the show and try to put all this together. If this is what Ron and I think it is, which is a piece of stunningly advanced Arthur Clarke's Third Law, super advanced technology from whatever era of the Martians you want to propose, what would this device, this piece, this fragment, this sample, this incredibly important specimen what would it rank in terms of value if it could be brought back, back engineered to use on Earth? How many millions or billions or maybe trillions of dollars would this one technology be worth in the open market all over this planet tonight?
That would be unlimited, Richard. Yes, exactly. And it's only one of thousands of treasures that are to be mined on the surface of Mars, the moon, other moons, looted from space habitats or spacecraft like Bennu. In other words, when we get into the pan of Bennu, when we actually delve into what these pieces are and what they used to do, is there a gold mine now on Earth of a template of the kind of technology that we can someday send all across the solar system to mine not resources, not raw metals, not oxides, not gases, not volatiles, but literally stunning Arthur C. Clarke Third Law machines and knowledge and technology, which even if we can't figure out how they work, because they're probably based on a totally different level of physics than we're using, maybe they could be replicated where you could sell them to consumers all around the world or governments or institutions or whoever would want to buy and have available this kind of technological capability. And that brings Richard, us... there's a wrinkle. Uh, well, okay. let, me, let me finish my thought. All right. That yeah, bring, that, and then we'll come to Ron's wrinkle. I like that, Ron's wrinkle. That's why what's going on... That's why what's going on in orbit tonight, Barry 1, with an HD space drive that apparently is working and lifting against all bets and all odds and all predictions all over the internet that, oh, it's a hoax, it's a scam, they just want more money. No, if it really works, it changes everything because that technology coupled with this as the gold mine gives us a fuelless, limitless space drive technology to go without rockets, without the limitations of stupid Newton's third law, and to sample and retrieve all kinds of technologies like this, bring them back to Earth and sell them to the highest bidder. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's technology. I think it is some intrinsically uh, powerful material that just happens to be there, and we don't have it here. Well, wait, wait, wait. That, 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 is, that is called in the lab material science. You make extraordinary materials. We have all kinds of you know, transistors and composite technologies and you know, uh, other, other levels of material engineering that mix carbons uh, and fibers and metals and metallic dope glass in other words it's a composite yeah, but this isn't graphene i have a good model no 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 i'm not saying it's a... anything we know but i'm saying well, it, yeah, was, it... it was made to be part of the dome in this model it fell down it did not shatter like other pieces we've actually seen on live video from perseverance materials falling out of the of the ceiling the attic parts of the dome and they they smash on the ground and you get a huge puff of dust which then blows away in a very stiff wind. Why is there a stiff wind on Mars where there's supposed to be zero atmosphere? Anyway, mm -hmm. the point is, I don't think it's a natural material. I think it's made. I think it's a fragment of a technology. It's not the object itself which is valuable. It's the technology which put it together, which you can back-engineer. 
why, why do you think we mine for things like um, uh, lithium? Uh, because they're scarce. So they, uh, you know, you could conceivably... Well, we just found a huge new deposit in uh, Quebec, I believe, that dwarfs what the Chinese have been sitting on. So they're well, not that right, scarce. The Chinese probably bought the landscape. You'd have to ask Andrew. But the, no, my, my point is, or my reference point is, since you use Star Trek a lot, uh, I find that the, there's an almost endlessly deep well of... Um, Apparently, very spot-on metaphors in Stargate, the other big franchise, and this is this is potentially Naquita. Naquita is the uh, yeah okay. And uh, yeah, well, do you remember you there know, was a whole I, plot line where where uh, what's his name of uh, uh, Anderson, uh, uh, Colonel what what O'Neill O'Neill became a yeah. double agent to join a secret government group, deep state. That we're basically going yep. out and trying to bring back technologies from all these worlds around the galaxy made available sure. by the Stargate and to sell them. And they oh, shut sure. it down. I wasn't, disputing, I wasn't disputing anything you said. I just think in this specific uh, instance, since pieces of whatever's up there have been falling down all along and we've seen the results elsewhere. And in fact, that's the picture that I is over on my side. Look at the first two pictures while talking. You see what I mean? That's the um, uh, that's an, a shot from I believe Mars Express. It's the background image that was used, is used in all those traverse maps that show the little jagged line where the uh, rover has been. Right, and, and and north and, is north is to the right. Right, and I had forgotten I had that image because when I said, "Oh, here's one without all the overlays and the uh, and the writing on it." Uh, and I applied some effort to cleaning it up because they all need cleaning up. And I said, no, this is wrong. It, it's it's all looking like a big soap bubble. It's all gleaming and glistening. It's, and it's, called, ir- it's called iridescence, and Google will help you spell it. Yes. It's the iridescence yeah, no, of the glass dome, and you're looking at the interface between outside the dome at the top of the picture and inside the dome at the bottom and the curved raised stuff which is all kind of all fuzzy mm-hmm. and glossy and, and, and colorful, like, like soap bubble glistening. That's the thick mm-hmm. edge of the dome meeting the surface of Mars. The ancient. Well, maybe. Well, how do you explain I it? think even the, well, it, these are orbital shots. And so they're yeah, looking straight down. Screen. Yeah, well, you're forgetting the screen door effect because the, the ground is far away. And it's focused on the ground. Those the pictures. Believe me, you're uh, a uh, couple of hundred miles up. The dome is seven miles high in the center. It, the difference in focal length is zero, so everything is in mm, focus. I don't know about Every, look, standard optics. Yeah. Google is your friend. Anything beyond a mm. few hundred feet is absolutely in focus. These are cameras focused at infinity. Yeah, Overall. they still show some positioning. Well, in any case, if you look at the the larger one, you know, which is blown up a bit more in shape. Okay, hang on. The, you, mean, for, you mean we go down to item number two? Yeah, there's only three items here. In the third look at all that. Else. Andrew, the, are uh, you seeing this? Andrew? Yes. Look at all that yes. incredible see, I, glass iridescence. See, I shoved that in a, in a drawer, so to speak, after I did it and forgot all about it until... Uh, last week, because uh, the uh, I said no, this can't be right. You know, I was looking at all that iridescence. 
Uh, and, there's geometry, uh, there's iridescence, multicolor, and it's foggy. Yeah. Like you're looking through several hundred feet Scuffed. at the edge yeah. of, of scattering glass, and there's iridescent colors that are not on the surface. They're in the damn dome. Well, it could easily be a, sl- a lower uh, level force field as well, because I think that's involved in this. Yeah, I but mean, thinking and proving level, it are two different height. things. The simpler explanation mm. is it's glass. Well, you don't dispute that the uh, that the uh, exodome, let's call it, uh, is uh, pretty sketchy after all this time. It's got a lot of holes in it, a lot of bare parts, a lot of parts where it's kind of... We have close-up so images it, from Perseverance coming down through it, which I have posted many, yes, many, many yes. times. Yes, that stuff so. is very compelling as far as it goes. Uh, but that still means that you can st- you can see the ground clear through uh, sometimes. But in any case, uh, see what the shame is. I, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but we don't have a lot of time. I want to bring, bring Ruggiero on. All right. Mm-hmm. When you look at the little trinkets they're putting in those titanium canisters for the impossibly expensive, you know, sample return mission to Mars uh, from Mars, which is going to last another what ten years. It goes back to Andrew's model, which is they're not serious. This is all a fake. It's a fent. It's a mm-hmm. it's a distraction. If they were serious, they'd send a spacecraft to pick this damn thing up and bring it home. Yeah, it would take priority over a lot of other things. Given that yeah, it's the uh, only one absolutely. we've seen uh, of, of years of Percy being on the floor and then climbing up on the on the delta of uh, Jezero. The only thing like this with internal geometry and so luminous, it makes everything else pale in direct sunlight. It is brighter than any other example of anything like been seen. Well, tell me, tell me a simple question. In the mainstream, yeah. NASA is saying this is a reflection from Perseverance, right? Yeah, we're back to the original rainbowy picture. Yeah, well, the object, the weird object. Yes, yes, yes. Not, yeah. not, not your... Yeah, they're all interrelated. But they are, yeah. yes, okay. So, when have you ever encountered a reflection that's brighter than the original? How can a reflection from Percy, which means bounce off a mirror-like surface, how can it be brighter by a factor of 10, at least, and I'm probably underestimating, than the surrounding fully sunlit landscape? See, nobody's doing any thinking. There's no thinking going on here. Richard, I have a point. Say again? There's Ruggiero here. I have a point. Yes. yes. Oh, Ruggiero. Ruggiero. Yeah. Point away. Good, point good away. morning. I'll just, I'll just uh, jump By in. By the way, yes. everybody's uh, bios are listed uh, under the fast links to items. So if you want to know who's speaking and what their expertise is, I'm not going to waste time because our audience knows a lot of these people. And you can simply read their background, you know, curriculum Vitas uh, on 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 the web. So Ruggiero. If this is uh, a completely bizarre object, so I'll just make a comment on the the, the reflective reflection we're seeing. It's Wouldn't, not a reflection. Time, what, <laughs> the sorry, the rainbow. How how, how do how do lasers work? Lasers are called light amplification by stimulated emission stimulated of radiation. Emission of radiation. <laughs> So Richard, at least let him climb in the ring before you punch him. I'm not punching him. I'm just saying that it's it's a light amplifier, (laughs) and he's agreeing. I want us all to be on the same page because words are important. 
as a wordsmith, what you call something determines how people look at it. It's not a reflection. It's an object amplifying sunlight and glowing like hell. Um, the nice colors we're seeing, Richard, <laughs> that's a bit more correct. Um, if it was, that's my point, a reflection, then we would see every time the, uh, the rover points at a certain particular angle to the sun, we, we'd see this color feature occur in a, every image every time it was at that bingo Rogero yeah, if you were time. here if you were exactly here I, right. if you were here I would kiss you because oh, I, I have cute. looked I've looked at thousands of images and you don't see a reflection from the rover of bright shiny surface on mm. almost any of them and if you do it's very pale because these are not mirrors the spacecraft was painted basically flat white to reflect sunlight you know uh, in terms of black body radiation to keep it at a certain temperature, to modulate the temperatures with the nuclear power source, which adds heat, and you don't want black body radiation at night. You want it to stay warm. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. If this was a casual reflection, like all the mainstream pundits are saying, you'd see it in so many damn pictures, and this is the only one that looks yeah, the, like this. The other point, I think you mentioned earlier, and I put it in the chat for it, was that the shadows are going in one direction they're going uh, sort of uh left to right at a um say an angle at four o'clock and the, this this patterning is going in the very opposite direction yeah it's just, exactly cattywampus with anything else in the picture and it's mm. brighter than any of the washed out part there's something else from yes yeah, Ron. Yeah, you guys are something Andrew, else. Go. Hi. There's something else, about, and I know we're about seven minutes away from the break, but there is something else unusual about this quote-unquote rock, and that is, <laughs> well, that is its texture. Now we've seen unusual sort of rocks on Mars that have unusual textures. Sometimes there's a lot of weird wire-like things poking out of the rocks, and and you know, um, so we're seeing that in the, in, in the Bennu samples. If you look at one of the most close-up images, there's a tangle of circuitry, little tiny wires with insulation yeah. on top of one of those objects, looking incredibly geometric. So yeah, it's right there. Just scroll up to one of my close-up images. Yeah, and, and I think I I I mean this is not. I mean we're not. It would be nice if we could get closer to this to this glow. But if you look at it sort of carefully, you start to see a pretty interesting uh, geometric matrix. It's got stunning it. internal geometry. Yes, yeah. ding, 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 Andrew. That's the first thing I noticed. Mm -hmm. It looks to be a coherent sandwich, multi-layered sandwich of smart architecture. Yeah, it, it, and if you look close, even not even in the glowing part, but in some of the other areas, again, you start to see these very interesting patterns and again you know i know i know you've enhanced this so this could you know maybe do something to the pixels but i don't think no it doesn't what... all so you that, do is bring think... out what's there saturation yeah. is not changing it's simply if, if the color is not there you can't amplify you can't bring it out well that's what i mean you and can't you create it over... out of the whole cloth yeah and if you look over to the sort of right side of this again rock <laughs> it's got some fascinating um just its surface texture looks 
look, I mean, if that's the most incredible, again, we're looking at these tiny samples and we're looking at this, you know. This I, is not assume, small. This is big. No, exactly. Oh, you're too. Yeah. We're, we're seeing, again, this, this, this similar kind of patterns, you know, like these. This is bigger than a bread box. <clears throat> yeah. And every, you know, the more I look at this, Richard, the more I look at what we're seeing on these, these images from the moon, from Mars, the more it seems like almost everything was engineered. I, I just can't get over it. I don't know whether it was an artistic reflection. Well, wait, wait, wait. We're looking at a Arthur C. Clarke type three. Well, I'm sorry, type type two civilization, which comes from uh, Kardashev and, and, and Arthur's third law. That was a Russian, you know, talked about three levels of super galactic civilization, type one, type two, type three. And the and the technology to do this basically domed in all kinds of worlds in our solar system. Look at Pluto. Look at Ganymede. Look at our own moon. In other words, Mars could have had a stunningly artificial surface at one point. Look at Sidonia. Look at all that geometry. And depending upon how long it's exposed, it erodes and erodes and erodes. It's not made of adamantine steel. It doesn't last forever. It may, in fact, have a half-life, but a half-life so much longer than any of our current technology that it's measured in millions of years, not, you know, a few hundred. Precisely, Richard. And it's so interesting that in this image, again, I'm referring to the to, – was this on Ron's stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, that's this, of the whole dome. His is all from orbit looking down from MRO. Mine, right. number 13, is a close-up. I think it's – I still think it's Mars Express. I was trying to find all the tags so that I could make them happy at ESSA. Well, it's one of the two. Uh, as, you know. yeah. Well, I was going to say, well, this is the Percy Prism-enhanced saturated scale. That It's that one. You mean uh, 13? Okay. My item 13. Yeah, I believe so. Sorry, I just separated it, and I put it on my, I put it on my desktop, and I just blew it up because I'm looking closely at it. But it's so apropos that it's gold – colored richard it's so apropos on the top and, yeah and that and but it's got yeah. other other pastel shades and it's the internal geometry the layering i mean imagine you're on mars and it's a long long time ago in a galaxy right next door <laughs> and you your dome you want to do several different things you want it to keep air in and all the other stuff out you want it to filter radiation if the atmosphere is much thinner than Earth, there's less, less ozone, less screening of ultraviolet, uh, cosmic rays. If, if Mars had no magnetic field, it would have to have properties to deflect hard particle radiation. In other words, it has to be a really, really, really smart material. But above all, it's got to be transparent. Otherwise, you're all going to be in the dark in a 30-mile-wide crater covered by this material. What happens when pieces of it fall down and you can look at them really close? It looks to me like that's what you get, what you're seeing. And it would be priceless, and there isn't anybody at NASA saying, oh, let's bring this thing home, at least not publicly. Okay, we're literally at the top of the hour. So everybody take a deep breath. Andrew and I are going to do something totally, unbelievably weird after the break.
Sorry about that. Small technical break, which we can, you know, as they used to say, <clears throat> we can fix it in post. Chris, take take notice, okay? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. What you have heard for the last two hours is a prelude to what I think is an encompassing, synoptic, really explicable model to explain so much weirdness of what's been going on, why they're hiding everything, why they design, you know, drop-dead missions, all nine, everything we talked about tonight, and then some. And what, if we're right, could be happening any day now with the official sanctioning and working in Earth orbit of a hyper-dimensional space drive underwritten by none other than DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. We shall return. everyone on this now Saturday night grading into Sunday morning you're on the other side of midnight January 28th the program tonight piece of the action Andrew and I have kind of put our heads together and I'm going to let Andrew now take the lead for the next hour we're going to obviously have time at the end for discussion and controversy and back and forth and all the usual stuff you've come to expect here on this show but I believe this model is so powerful that it explains everything which has happened over the last 
30 years, if not 50 years. And what is going to happen in terms of predictions of the model in the near future? So, Andrew, I think you should have the honor of laying out what we're talking about and why it is connected to this really sterling episode of the original Star Trek called A Piece of the Action. Yeah, well, Richard, um, I know you and I had some discussions and we started bouncing some ideas along. And and folks, you know, when we review this, it, you know, for, for me, I, I, you know, I'm trying to find the threads. We're all trying to find the threads here. And, you know, they're, they're not entirely provable yet, but they are intriguing. And, you know, one of the things you pointed out, Richard, in your items is this counter argument, these op-eds about, whoa, why even bother going to the moon? Meaning, why do we even want to bother going into space? And, and yet, if you go to my items, and we're not going to look at the video, but I want to read a couple little quotes from NASA's video, Why the Moon? Um, you know, NASA is very clear that they want to go to the moon, establish colonies, uh, look for water, you know, for livability and for fuel. I mean, again, Richard, we're talking rocket fuel. We know that's a cover. <laughs> and then be, be the launch point to Mars and beyond. And so in my items, um, NASA, Ar- NASA Artemis is called Why the Moon. And I'm going to read a, 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 a short quote here. So in, in, within their, their, their video, they say, the Artemis missions will build a community on the moon, driving a new lunar economy, and inspiring a new generation new generation the video explains why returning to the moon is the natural step in human space exploration and how the lessons learned from artemis will pave the way to mars and beyond and so right away we have um well we have a binary uh richard with this sort of argument of like why are we even bothering you know why waste money on artemis and then our, you know nasa which is government very clearly saying we're going to do it and then we have all we have um you know all these sort of um uh, commercial in commercial industries now getting involved as well and you know as we move forward we see more articles about space mining again richard space mining that's a cover for a different kind of mining as we've talked about because i think the real gold in our solar system is the tech is the technology that could propel us forward of course you know, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the new it's the new it's the new um, gold rush. I think that's how how we frame this. It, it's it's the the solar system gold rush, and it's coming. And there's 1849 all over again. Exactly. And isn't it interesting that the 49ers are going to play the Baltimore Ravens probably in the Super Bowl <laughs> in three weeks from now? <laughs> so put your money on that. Um, no, and you know we know what the 49ers are. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's what we're starting to see is basically the commercialization of space, and we're seeing an infrastructure being set up within space, and that will include not only the above board parties, but maybe some interesting groups, you know, coming up the middle. Um, well, do you remember? Wanna... Do you remember a few years ago uh, there was an announcement? of a German commercial communications company that was going to wire the moon with 5G. And there's nobody there yet. 
Yes, Richard, and also um, from a February 24th, 2021 article, uh, J.P. Morgan was basically discussing how they are going to venture into space with banking using a blockchain designed by something called Onyx. I, I don't know the details of it, but they are essentially saying we're going to start putting blockchain and bounce it from satellite to satellite back to the earth and probably beyond. So we know that JP Morgan very clearly has said we're stepping into space. And, you know, as we kind of go through this process in the next hour, as, as you know, as we venture down this road, we got to um, start to wonder, Richard, who's going to regulate this stuff in space? I mean, does, does, if, if we start moving into space banking and if we start setting up a clearing house system in the solar system, who's regulating it? Like, how does this work? Does it come under that UN, was it 1966, that UN treaty for the outer space agreement and how nobody can own a planet or a celestial body? Like, how, how does this figure in? Are we even caught up? And isn't that, that um, treaty, wasn't that just designed for countries? Is there anything that's been designed for the commercial world? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, that's that's one area that I I certainly haven't looked into. But another doubt on Andrew about that. That's what's that? Uh, I heard Robert Zimmerman talking about it. And oh, really? That's that that treaty. That treaty is a big stumbling block. They said because uh, you can't have any property rights under that because it's simply it's categorical. No, 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 no. No you one can own you, anything. You, no, no, no. Private enterprise is clear in the 1967 treaty. Governments can't own the moon or parcels or whatever. But private enterprise, it's wide open. Corporations, it's wide open. Hmm. And well, I think that's specifically at odds with what I heard Zimmerman say. So maybe then Zimmerman is wrong. <laughs> he can I, be. He can. I, I think. I think from what I saw, though, Ron, like that's the problem. That, yeah. That's the stickler. Is that it does refer at the time they were thinking of countries, right? Yes, Rather of course. Than, uh, the idea of private enterprise in space was was absolutely impossible, given how damn hard and expensive even to get into Earth orbit it was. Now, of course, we're in a totally new era. If the Barry One thing is a foreshadowing of things to come, mm -hmm. you marry Musk with rockets to Earth orbit, with um, uh, you know the the quantum drive or all the other wannabes that are waiting in the wings, and it gives you the solar system and the stars. As a private Girl Scout group in Podunk, Idaho, you can field a mission to go into space as far as you want because suddenly the barrier is gone technologically and the price has dropped by a factor of, what, 10,000 to one or something. Sounds good to me. I'm speaking as a former landholder on the moon. <laughs> when I was when I was little, they had a promotional thing going with I think it was Ralston Purina, and uh, I purchased uh, several square feet of the moon. It didn't cost very much, but you had to pay for it. You know, you were, and they were literally selling pieces of the moon. But that was right before that treaty happened, and afterwards, I'm not kidding. I remember when they came. The uh, they had to send everybody a check and buy the land back because it was not it was retroactive. You could not own a piece of the moon, and that was just private citizens. So I don't know how that applies here, but um, it might. 
Well, well, on that that note, um, Ron, and coming back to sort of the astrobiotics peregrine moon um, mission, I looked up what the manifest was because we were we were I was wondering, well, what are all the experiments? What do they have on this little this little um, probe? And so my number two is Astrobotic Peregrine Moon Manifest, and I'll, and I'll click on that if you want to click on it. And it, it, what pops up is, are all the experiments and things that were on this, uh, uh, this little probe that allegedly is burned over the Earth's atmosphere, right, Richard? We're still kind of in that um, – well, I mean, that's what we're told. We don't, we don't have definitive proof, right? But we're, we're told that's mm-hmm. what happened. And that's what was tracked. Well, if you look at this manifest, you can kind of go through it. Um, there's um, linear energy transfer spectrometer. Um, there's a momentos to the moon. So there's all these little things that go on. But as you sort of scroll through it, you go down closer and closer to the bottom, and there is something here called a lunar Bitcoin. And it's literally a physical Bitcoin, and they call it the lunar Bitcoin. And it was put on hmm. Peregrine Probe. Yes, Richard. And then the very last item in this manifest is a Bitcoin magazine Genesis plate, which apparently, let me read, read this out. This plate includes a copy of the Genesis block, the first block of Bitcoin to be mined. This cornerstone of the Bitcoin network provides the foundation for an ecosystem that would challenge our perception of how money is valued and managed in a digital age. So hang on, hang on. This was on Peregrine. Designed to land on the moon and last forever. Yep. Okay. And so this is, to me, the sprinkling of the seeds <laughs> of commerce in our in, in our well in our solar system and perhaps in our. It's not a sprinkling; it's a flood. It's it is Richard, and one of the things that we we were um, let me get them back to my items. I just lost them. Um, we pop out of that. And I have a, a few articles which, here. That which, number? which number? Which uh, number? That was my number two. That was okay, the astrobotic yeah, uh, peregrine. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to go – people can go and read um, number three. The reason why I looked at the – this one, my number three is Pittsburgh helped the U.S. win the space race. Now, local tech is going to go into the moon again. So, Richard, the peregrine um, uh, project came out of Pittsburgh, correct? Yes? Yep. It did, and it was. And I just wanted to do a little search on what, how Pittsburgh may have helped the space race, and they did. So back when the Apollo um, mission was missions were going on, aluminum was used from Pittsburgh to be part of the Apollo program. Richard, you probably know more about that than I could ever. Um, and uh, and Surveyor and the others. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few other articles here talking about space mining, and they and again, I, I think when we're talking about space mining, I think they're going to be looking for something. Well, there's this a big lot. robotics university in Pittsburgh called Carnegie Mellon, yeah. which has been at the head of computer and now AI development for decades, even before Apollo. Yeah, yeah, and it's there is a particular fellow and i don't have him on top of my list right now i'll grab him a little later he was one of the professors that was sort of behind some of the projects at um, carnegie mellon at carnegie mellon and this guy well he's one of the founders of astrobotic isn't he he was one of the founders of astrobotic and darn i don't have his name at the the moment but he was also involved Well, it was red something or other a nickname yeah 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 i'll i'll pop it out but 
he was involved, also involved with DARPA oh, <laughs> programs. How special. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys are all intermeshed, right? This is not some sort of um, haphazard, you know, circum circumstance. You know, well, this, this is these kind guys... of like not so deep a state. Exactly. This is the folks exactly. you don't see on television, but the movers and shakers behind the scenes in terms of policy, direction, programs, and they have a long, long-term plan for the future. That's right. And this is getting really serious because if you go to my number six, this okay. is something I just found. It's called um, Travel Insurance for Space Tourism. So oh, my now, God. Exactly. So you you have these articles on the one side, Richard, saying, oh, why do we want to even go to the moon? What's the point of Artemis? Well, we now have travel insurance for space tourism. Holy now, this is obviously. Cow. Yeah. And this and this is serious. Like this is like they're really talking about this. You pop out of that and you come to my number seven. And this article is about a hotel in space could be operational in just five years. So we're talking about, you know, in, in our orbit, maybe that's where the space, the space travel insurance. Well, you marry the starship, which gets you into low Earth orbit. And then you put that together with, um, you know, a space drive that isn't rockets like Barry one. And as Heinlein said, once you're in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. And they, we, we could be talking about hotels on the moon, on Mars, in the asteroid belts, uh, circling beyond the rings. Of, can you imagine a honeymoon suite overlooking the rings of Saturn at Titan's distance? Nothing's this, impossible with exactly, this. Exactly. And at this point, you know, we're talking about the uber rich doing this, but as we know, you need workers, and as you know, there's there's all kinds of contracts. It's called labor. Um, but I wanted to focus a little bit here on a company called Above. Oh. And, um, it's my number eight. They have like a pyramid for their logo, actually. It's very interesting. They're called Above Space Development, and um, people can look at that in their own time and, and scroll through them. They're basically uh, – their primary industry is aerospace and defense, which I found interesting. The video is very interesting. One of the um, principals, it's himself. I think he did some NASA – he's an engineer. He had a lot of – did a lot of work with NASA as well as a Japanese fellow. They're the main two, two people behind this. So you're seeing a lot of these startup space companies coming online now. But let me read you some quotes from the, the video and some of the little snippets I got from their website. Um, so this is all about this. They're called above, and they're basically a space development corporation. And this whole website is looking for investors. I mean, that's where they start, but that's what they're looking to do. Anyways, this comes from the fellow who runs it. He goes, my colleagues and I started above because we realized we had a fast track to allow humanity to move to space and to make a profit doing so. We already... Oh, have letters. Yes, it's, we like, already it's have. like it's like Groucho Marx and the, and the duck come down and you say the magic word and you get two hundred dollars. The magic <laughs> word tonight is profit. Yes, we already have letters of commitment to make profitable <laughs> from the very first mission. So they, they what they talk about is develop and operating gravity capable space stations in orbit, including commercial space stations space solar power platforms and propellant depots enabling humanity to work play 
and thrive in the same ecosystem. So this is what we have going on. So I find it fascinating, Richard, that we have these naysayers. I mean, maybe they're just put there to just fill up space. I don't know. But I think a lot of that is to oppose like I think, I think what we're seeing now, Richard, is there's a side that wants to push humanity into the solar system and, and beyond, at least openly, because I think we've been doing this for a long time through some sort of program. I mean, we've called it the secret space program, and et cetera, but something else has been happening, I believe. Um, and then there's some group trying to stop it. But coming up the middle, coming up the middle between these groups is is a quiet group. and I, And this is where you know the speculation runs pretty wild but i but i uh, um richard and i had had these discussions and we were bouncing ideas around and i started to it, this all began because i started to think for some reason about the year 1957 don't ask me folks why i was thinking about 1957 but i started to think about 1957 and I, I thought, well, what was significant about 1957? And, well, there was two events that happened, Richard Sputnik and then the delivery of that little dog, the Russian dog that went to space that same year. Yeah, like you, like a, like Yeah. Can you explain what what the significance of Sputnik was and then the the putting of, of an animal, like a live animal in, into orbit was, please? Well, of, of, we were, you know, we thought of ourselves as the technological superpower of earth and there was this careful methodical plan a la eisenhower to develop a non-military spacecraft to be the first satellite orbiting the earth the vanguard program developed by civilians not the military and then in october of 1957 october 4th the russians the soviets shattered the u.s complacency and you know feeling of invincibility by putting up this basketball-sized bauble called Sputnik 1. And everybody freaked out. And, you know, Eisenhower tried to calm things down. And Von Braun and his team, through the Army, through Madeiras, through Marshall, basically said they could have a spacecraft ready in 90 days to go. And Eisenhower said, no, he wants it to be civilian. And he wanted to establish, I mean, there's a whole layer and layer of political, you know, uh, machinations behind this. So he said to Von Braun, no. And then shortly, you know, months later, the Russians launch a second satellite with a dog, with a biological specimen named Laika. You know, the U.S. government freaks out and Eisenhower is forced to give Von Braun and his team uh, their their head. And by January of 58, uh, they launch Explorer 1. But the background was, and I've always felt that the reason, the real reason that Eisenhower didn't let von Braun loose to do it earlier before the Russians is because Americans are basically lazy. We only really get our our dander up when someone else is going to beat us to the prize. And the idea of these upstart, technologically stupid communists beating us into the solar system was absolutely uh, tantamount to losing, you know, the prelude to World War III. And, you know, the idea they could send ballistic missiles, they could drop bombs on us from orbit, that whole fear porn thing. So uh, I believe Eisenhower deliberately allowed the Russians to beat us so there'd be this unbeatable, undeniable 
power of the American industrial juggernaut unleashed by Kennedy later, and then it wound us up first on the moon, et cetera, et cetera, and we've been leading kind of ever since. And this, I think, was a prelude to the second age of space where it will not be governments, it will be private enterprise, private corporations, private individuals, and maybe another set of private players. Yes, because, Richard, and here's my big jump out on the twig of speculation, as Farrell says. I like that, the twig of speculation. (laughs) Well, right after that um, October launch of Sputnik, and as you said, you know, the U.S. had to mobilize its industrial tendrils, right, and everything associated with that. Well, one of the big things that happened in 1957, in November, November the 14th, actually, was a meeting of mafia bosses, a hundred men. Met what? In the Appal- yes, they met in the Appalachian. The mob? The mob. One hundred people, basically. They were from from Sicily, they were from Cuba, and they were mostly from the United States. And they all gathered in this um, property of, of one of these mob people. And it was in uh, the Appalachian part of, um, of in, New York. In upstate New York. Yeah. And they all gathered there. And the cover story is, and if you, you, know, you can go and uh, find articles on this and uh, interesting, you know, short and longer you know, uh, um, documentaries on it. And the one, basically, what they're saying is they got together to sort of reorganize themselves, define, you know, their their different operations, see if they could coordinate better, find out who was going to be the top dog. But one of the things that I that keep nagging me, Richard, is that in the end, after all of these documentaries, these articles, and even an interview I watched with a, an expert in this in, in this particular meeting. This meeting, by the way, um, inspired a film called. If you go to my number eleven, it's called uh, Mob Town. And there's a trailer there that had uh, some really interesting actors that was back in the, I think, in the early 2000s. Maybe it was 2017. Um, But what was interesting is that nobody really knows the reason why they got together, these hundred. Again, it was mob bosses. It was their consultants. What, you mean after 50, 60 years? Still, Richard, nobody's really clear why they got together. A worldwide meeting of the mob in Upper New York State. Yeah. Right after Sputnik and Sputnik 2. Yep. And this Mm. is in the milieu of the U.S. assembling, you know, motivating industry, you know, across the country to, well, begin to catch up with the Russians. Well, I want to flip back to a very interesting book that came out. I haven't read it yet, but I, f- I found articles about it, and that's actually one I'm going to have to order. Um, and this book is called Operation Underworld, How the Mafia and the U.S. Government Teamed Up to Win World War II, and it's by an author named Matthew Black. And I want to read a little expert, excerpt, expert, excerpt from uh, a little description of it. Never has the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, had more truth than when the U.S. government and the criminal underground joined forces to defeat the Nazi menace. For the first time ever, the full story of how Charles Lucky Luciano, the U.S. mafia boss who put the organized into organized crime, was recruited by U.S. naval intelligence in 1942 
to aid the Allied war effort in the U.S. invasion of Sicily, a turning point in World War II. And basically what the, what the issue was in 1942, it was becoming very obvious that the New York Harbor was vulnerable to, um, you know, basically German U-2 U- or U-boats, uh, the, you know, the right. submarines. And um, Italian agents and all, you know, like all kinds of. Well, there were submarines that deposited, you know, third columnists off on Long Island that were arrested eventually. Yeah, exactly. So what the what the Navy did is they basically recruited the crime bosses who controlled the harbors and the fishermen and all of that stuff. And not only did they do it in New York, but they did it in Sicily. Well, what, they, do you remember that great film called The Rocketeer? Yes. Which basically had this guy who'd invented a, a backpack, and the Nazis wanted it, and they had an agent, a Hollywood actor, and there was this ingenue and all that. And who turned out to be the good guys in Los Angeles on the grounds of Griffith Park Observatory, who basically beat back the Nazis and defeated the plan to steal the, the rocket backpack? The mob! <laughs> Exactly. Richard, they hated they hated the fascists. They hated Mussolini. They hated Hitler. These guys are entrepreneurial marketeers. And that and they were and actually the Navy was apparently from the articles that I read, the Navy was very surprised when they were able to basically recruit these these guys in New York to just keep an eye on things and report and, and give uh, give a lot of intel. Okay, we're at the, the bottom of the hour. <clears throat> so we've got one half hour to go. Wait till you see where this is going. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. <laughs> We're taking over the uh, whole ball of wax. And you cooperate with us, and uh, maybe we'll cut you in for a piece of the action. A minuscule, a very small piece. How much is that? That's, um, we'll figure it out later. Thought you guys had laws. No interference. Who's interfering? We're taking over. Check. Right. The uh, planet is being taken over by the Federation, but we don't want to come in here and uh, use our muscle. You know what I mean? Uh, that ain't uh, subtle. So what we do is we, we help one guy take over the planet, he pulls the strings, and then we pull his. <laughs> hey, you. Um, sit down. 
choice, you know what I mean? He's standing about 12 feet in front of me, all ready to be our pal. Of course, uh, Scotty, I'd like to show him the ship, just uh, to show him that we're, uh, we're on the level. But you know how it is. Aye. I know indeed. Scotty, we'll uh, need uh, phasers uh, to equip uh, every one of Krakow's men. We'll need advisors and troops to back him up on the hit. You got all that, uh, Scotty? Aye, Captain. Captain, we're preparing everything. It'll be ready when you give the word. You, uh, may begin, Mr. Scott. Acknowledged, Captain. You mean you're gonna start sending down your boys now? Not exactly. appears to be the model. Andrew. Yes, well, um, I want to project now past 1957 and move to 1960 when the plot was hatched by the U.S., well, by the CIA, I believe, um, to to kill a young Castro. Because remember, um, in, in Cuba, the mob was deeply established there with um, all their operations. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And when the... All those casinos, all those tourists, all that skimming, a huge piece of the action. Exactly. And then when they were turfed, they had a vendetta against the communists. Because again, remember the mob communism as well. So there was a, a, I mean, you probably could relate this better than me, Richard, but there was basically a, a plot that was hatched to use mobsters to try to assassinate Castro and put an end to, you know, the infiltration of communism, you know, on our shores, basically. So with those, that, those bracketing, you know, examples in place, we come back to 1957 and the gathering of this, of this group of mobs. And again, you, you I know it's speculation, but it, it, the timing of it is amazing. And I found a really interesting fact. I got a little echo. I was looking at three of the mob bosses that were part of this 100-person gathering in 1957. One, one fellow, his name was Carlo Gambino. Now, he was described as highly disciplined, meticulous, loyal, and a careful planner, and he was notorious for his adherence to secrecy. He was very deeply involved in the construction industry 
in New York. He controlled labor unions and he knew how to manipulate construction contracts. So, wow, he, he was you know beautifully positioned. Now, Vito Genovese, he was known as a mafia enforcer. These are three of the people that were part of this meeting. Now, here's an interesting one for you, Richard. This one is named is Joe Profacci. Or prof, yeah, Profacci. Now, this guy was apparently was a business genius, and he was a successful entrepreneur and a philanthropist. Now, his big claim to fame was that he became known as the king of olive oil, and he was the best, biggest exporter in Chicago. Now, um, if we fast forward to the, the, two, the 2020s, and if you look up olive oil in the space industry – up pops a whole lot of um, articles about olive oil having important roles in the diets of astronauts. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and it's got to do with it being an antioxidant and adding flavor and, you know, just, just really good nutrition. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Now, again, it's, it's, it's a strand. But in recent years, apparently the mafia has infiltrated – well, first of all, the, the – uh, Profaci, his family turned into, into uh, uh, the Colombo family, and it's hard. You know, you really have to do some deep research to see where these these families still have their, um, you know, if they still exist. And I think a number of them still do. Where is their influence? I mean, you're not exactly going to find it right off the bat, but it's just very interesting that olive oil, and he was the king of olive oil, comes up as a big piece in, um, you know, in in space. Um, exploration because of diet. Now, one of the, the outcomes of that 1957 meeting was, and the reason why it got sort of outed was a police officer in New York City apparently, I guess, recognized one of these, these fellas, these mafia bosses, ordering like a whole ton of specialty meats in some deli or something in New York. And he basically tipped local law enforcement and then all, like all these guys were arrested. Um, now, what's interesting is that this whole chain of events made um, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI, who up until that point refused to believe there was organized – well, that organized crime was a really big problem in the United States, even though he was getting tons of pressure that it certainly was. Well, this proved that it really did exist. Now, Richard, that looks to me like someone in Hoover who was basically turning a blind eye to what was really going on. Again, speculation, but it was this event that forced him to come up with a whole different plan to deal. You with mean this big uh, worldwide mob meeting in Appalachia in Upper New York State? Exactly. And, you know, so a lot of. Within know, months of Sputnik. Exactly, Richard. So there's a lot of tendrils here. It's hard to connect it, but of all the groups, you know, like think of the mafia, think of the mob. Yeah, one of the, what was one of the big complaints of the of the paperclip Nazis when they came to the United States when they, when they were recruited and brought to the United States? Their biggest complaint was red tape is having you know they wanted to get things done they wanted to build rockets they wanted to carry on their work from the you know from from the Nazi Germany days and and just keep continuing and what they kept running into was all kinds of red tape they couldn't get projects off the ground well. Who can get stuff going off the ground because they're infiltrated into labor, into construction, into steel, into – excuse me, into um, cement? The whole deal is, is the mafia. They get things done. They don't, they, they don't have to. Well, there was a huge scandal when Lyndon Johnson, who was basically the 
father of the American space program, not really Eisenhower, because it was it was uh, Johnson who basically convinced Kennedy in the administration to go to the moon and take von Braun's model and all this. And Johnson had a very close confidant named Bobby Baker, who it turned out when Rockwell in California was picked as the prime contractor for the Apollo command and service modules, uh, Bobby Baker got the uh, inside track on all the vending machines in all the factories that would be used to create the Apollo program. All those 400,000 workers who get thirsty on the job. And then it turned out that Bobby Baker and Lyndon Johnson had this kind of unholy alliance. And literally the day or two before Kennedy was assassinated in November 22nd, 1963, Johnson was about to be indicted as a confidant of Bobby Baker for insider trading, corruption, uh, kickbacks, money, all the whole nine yards. And the assassination of the president and the assumption of the presidency by Johnson made all that go away. So, Richard, and who was supposed to have killed Kennedy? The mob. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, Robert did. Robert Morningstar did. um, I I think he did a couple of interviews, actually, with a a fellow who was apparently associated with the mob, who has now come forward and said, I was the guy that one of the guys that was doing the shooting. And Robert could tell you all about it. He did a very emotional um, interview on his show. So what you know, we we have this image in our popular culture of the mob being a bunch of a bunch of you know knuckle draggers. Well, just like you know. Well, look, you and I love data, right? <clears throat> You're an artist, I'm a scientist, but their science and art are basically one and the same. A few days ago, as we started plotting this thing out, I I told you about a very personal, bizarre experience in my own life, my professional career from the beginning of me looking at Sidonia and taking it all seriously. And you said, what? So let me tell you again and and our audience tonight. A couple years after, you know, Monuments and it was a bestseller and I'm on all kinds of television shows and Art Bell and all that. I get a call one day from a guy in Joyzee who speaks with kind of an accent like Kirk was mimicking in Piece of the Action. And he starts calling me every single day asking me where the research was every single day and eventually we got to be really kind of you know palsy walsy and I, I never met him never came to the house I was there in Weehawken but at one point he admitted that he was part of the mob out of Las Vegas Las Vegas which is our banner for tonight which has this huge, incredibly $2.3 billion dome made of millions of LEDs that can be programmed by computer and AI to look like anything. And the image you see is part of a video that was shot when they were testing the LED system on what they call the sphere. It's of the moon, but if you look closely, it's the moon with a glass dome around it and this guy was from vegas and he called me 
every single day. Rain, shine, whatever. Even tracked me down when I was in, you know, on travel in hotels and whatever. Every single day, he wanted to know what was the latest in our research on Mars at Sidonia. Why do you think he, as a representative of the mob, was interested in a non-entity like Hoagland? Because they ultimately want and will have, in the big, big picture we've laid out tonight, a major piece of the action. Richard, who was the, in that Tom Corbett Viewmaster Real series, who was the enemy? I don't think we know. I think that uh, Polaris and their team went to the moon in that reel, which was supposed to be a pilot for the Tom Corbett TV series, which, of course, was in black and white. It wasn't in color. And the Viewmaster slides are stunningly in color, done by that genius artist that you unearthed, Francis Thompson, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Anyway, the idea was they go to the moon. Thomas. Thomas, yeah, thank you. Thomas. They they go to the moon. They find a glass tetrahedron with a globe of Mars inside with a, you know, location for where they can then go to Mars to land, look at artifacts, figure out where they need to go further, and they wind up, again, in the Viewmasters, to the asteroids where they find an incredibly ancient and advanced solar system-wide civilization on a planet destroyed as, you know, careening bits of rock and metal and the crust and the core of this ancient world. And the alien species that was this super intelligent global solar system-wide Clark, you know, type three civilization were pussycats. They were felines, like the face on Mars. And Richard, I believe that the enemy or the opposition in that in that little story, I believe it was a crime syndicate. I believe it was I, I have to go back and look again, but I think that little hint was put in there as well, from what I remember. Almost like a a James Bondy, you know. Hmm. What what is that called? Um, Spectre. That kind of feel, you know. Oh yeah, I mean all those all those enemies in the Bond films and then the, the, the copycats are all not governments; they're private super billionaires who basically want to take over the world. Does that remind you of anybody? Let's see who on the tip of my tongue. There's a billionaire who. You follow what I'm intimating. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're talking about Bezos. Yeah. And there's another few. Well, oh, you Trump were going to say Musk. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, Musk too, but Trump has Trump has done two things. He's built buildings and he's built casinos. And we know who controls the labor and who controls the cement. Well, speaking of of Trump, here's a weird wacko angle on all this. The Enterprise mission, this team, through a very close 40-year confidant of Donald Trump in New York City, I was able to get a video we all worked on 
Kinthea and Tim edited. We literally sent it to this individual in New York City who has known Donald Trump for almost half a century. And he, in turn, sent it to the White House. So then newly elected Donald Trump got a chance to see in that video what there was on the moon, on Mars, and beyond that he, as president, could order NASA to put on the surface of the Resolute desk and prove with one phone call. And a few weeks, a couple, three weeks after that video got delivered, the president called up his head of NASA and said, you're planning to go back to the moon in 2028 with this thing called Artemis? He said, I want it in 2024, which would have been at the end of his second term. So unlike Kennedy, who did not live to see the fruition of Apollo and would not have, even if he had lived because of the length of time it took to develop the technology, Donald Trump planned to be president when Artemis went to the moon under his administration and he could announce all these incredible extraterrestrial technological wonder physics devices and knowledge and technology and libraries and machines and anything you could imagine as spearheaded by Donald Trump's administration. And then, a few days ago, as he is running to become president again and be in the Oval Office when all these plans finally come to fruition, whose name did he drop out of nowhere? But Al Capone, as a hero, as a great man, and Sonny, whatever the mobster is who's living in in prison now, who wrote him a fan letter on X that the ex-president was quoting in detail. I see bookends. And, and Richard, let's remember that the mafia, the American mafia, they're patriots. They're they're they're, oh, yeah. entre- they're entrepreneurs and they're patriots. So this is you know like there's so many layers here, and you know what's interesting? Um, I believe it was last week or the week before, but who was the name of that 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 in East the East Asian fellow, the Indian fellow that was really beautifully spoken, um, and he stepped down from being the uh, candidate for the Republicans. What's his name? Um, uh, Ron, help me out here. Oh, Vic of... uh, of, uh, Yeah, I forget his... Darn it. Young guy, Vic Ramaswamy. Yeah, apparently... Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy. Yeah, he pronounces it like cake. Yeah, I know that. By the way, you know there's a number of Indians running for president? There's, you know, Ramaswamy, and then there's Nikki Haley. Suddenly we have yeah, Indians from India running to be head of the most powerful country in the world. I Just, believe Kamala Harris is uh, background. Yeah. Her mother, yes, I think is her from mother. India. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well there's, any, there's, there's, they're of Indian derivation. They're not Indians. They're citizens. Well, yeah, but well, their Ron, heritage is Indian. Yeah. Well, listen, you guys. From well, a time when they were figured to be lower than blacks and Negroes. 
That's well, how far well, they I'm have come. in this because I was raised around Quakers, and I just that just it wasn't everywhere. And of course, it was well, nothing is everywhere. We're talking about a swath of the American society which has evolved at light speed to where now two Indian, uh, you know, backgrounded people, American citizens, of course, otherwise they couldn't be, you know, president, rise to the top and are running for president of the United States, suddenly. And isn't, and isn't the British Prime yeah, Minister of Indian? The British Prime Minister is Indian as well, I think, isn't he? Well, I believe he's all uh, Yes, that's true. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Well, anyway, and and was, what what did Modi do, Prime Minister of India? The that. Indian mission to the moon, of all the missions which have been sent in the last year or two, is the only new government allowed to land on the moon. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And then it went silent. It supposedly died at sunset. How do we know? All they had to do was put a second transmitter and switch frequencies, and the Indians could be running around at the South Pole looking at the stunning stuff they landed on. That's a whole other show. And no one would ever know. Well, Richard, in his speech where he was basically, I guess, handing his delegates over to um, Trump, he began to talk Ramaswamy. About... What's that? Ramaswamy. He began to talk about UFO, UAP disclosure. Really? And then, yes. And then Donald Trump, when he began to speak, started to refer to his uncle, John Trump. His famous physicist uncle, high energy physicist at MIT, who, by yeah. the way, who, by the way, hung out a lot with Trump. And if his uncle was no fool, do you think for an instant that he would have hung out with an idiot like a lot of people are proclaiming see trump i've always thought from the get-go there were multiple levels here and what we're seeing is such diversion for what's really going on and when he linked his campaign with the mob i think we're looking at a meta theory which can explain why the secrecy why the cover-ups why the distraction why nobody admits what we're surrounded with in this ancient, incredibly designed solar system. It's because somebody intends to have a major piece of the action. And they didn't want anybody to know until they were ready to move technologically, politically, economically. And Donald Trump could be their president to make it all Happen. Mm. Good thing you brought it up at the end of the show. <laughs> I didn't bring it up. Yeah. Donald Trump brought up I'm not Al waste Capone. The last ten minutes of the show talking about that, but it's uh, Ron. 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 Face facts. Al Capone did not come into this conversation through any other doorway than Donald Trump. Well, I what's interesting? Moving on. Moving on. Existed. Moving on. We got uh, five minutes, actually four. Ruggiero, you said you had something that might be relevant to this conversation. I think the show is is generally about uh, space tech and and what uh, could be out there for us. If people quickly click on to my items, uh, number one and two, and then three, 
Okay. We're there. So I did a, a series of uh, drawings and uh, screenshots. Um, number one is uh, I, I stole your image. Which, which, uh, <laughs> you probably gave me. Remember, poor uh, poets plagiarize, great poets steal. And what I did is I just searched around um, for some stuff to draw. And I zoomed in and I found image two, which was on one of the little particles of rocky stuff. Mm -hmm. This funny looking shape. It almost looks like a diagram of a chromosome. Exactly. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, or a symbol. So I, I just drew that and the surroundings. And then when you super zoom in on the image, it's either pixelation or there's this um, grand, um, sort of grid-like patterning. Right. Um, which I, I thought, well, it makes a nice artistic interpretation on my sketch image number three. Um, and when you zoom, when you super zoom in on my sketch, I've added. So there's two things going on. There's the, the there's the grid patterning. Then there's this weird, techy-looking. Uh, Spiral, squarey shapes. In other words, geometry, circuitry, not rocks. Anything but rocks. Very unusual. Um, Can I'm, you imagine what this have, stuff would go for if you offered it to the public for bid on on hmm. Christie's or uh, what's that other big auction site in New York? Ron, help I me out. I can't remember. But let, let's look at number four. Okay. Quickly click on number... Actually, go to number five first, and okay. then go back to number four. Okay. Yeah. Can you see the weird M shape in the bottom? Yeah, of course. And then go on to number. This looks like four. artificial circuitry and mechanical stuff. It does not look like rocks at all. Rocks don't look like that. Yeah. Period. So I've, I've added, you know, we'll, I'll put my hand up and say I've added a tiny bit of artistic interpretation, hmm. um, but. Look at the image number number four, and you'll see that M sticking out underneath the big blob. Mm-hmm. Got it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And finally, see, look, we are we are so blessed to have two incredibly talented artists who have two very different styles, and when they bring their talents to bear on this stuff, they come up with the same artifacts. Thank you. So, and uh, look at image six. It's oh, really yeah. weird. And it looks like teeth, sort of like teeth. Yes. It looks like a, it's not a mouth. It looks like uh, circuitry teeth coming together. Um, so I, I drew that in seven, and you can see that. Now, the fascinating thing is, all the stuff I feel like I'm drawing is kind of the same as the president's artifacts, in a way. Look at that. The yep. same recurring pa- yep. patterning. And... Um, I thought it would be fitting to, to fit that image in. Well, again, oh, when, when, as, as, as Andrew said earlier, when they're, when they're talking glibly about the show. when they're talking about mining, actually, we're at the end of the show. 30 oh, seconds. Oh, my gosh. Thanks, um, everyone. Yep. See, I get distracted by the very end, so sorry about that, folks. Well, tomorrow night, we're going to do something very different. We're going to do artificial intelligence and how that fits into all this. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.